dear listeners, a quick programming note on this episode. If you missed our Princess and the Frog episode, this is going to be a two-parter because, number one, there was a lot to say about Hunchback of Notre Dame, and number two, we are welcoming our very first guest host, which, when you already have a two-hour podcast, hey, you know, it's a great idea. Bring somebody on to make it even longer. For that reason, we don't think the guest hosts are a thing we're going to do regularly, but it was an absolute blast this time. I said it in Princess and the Frog, I'll say it again, y'all are in for such a treat. So part one here is going to be The Lord into the Land, and part two, which is also dropping today simultaneously with this one, is going to be Dread Possibilities and Parting Thoughts. Also, in a couple minutes, past Rachel is going to be delivering the content warning that has everything that you would expect, given that our Dark Lord is Frollo, possibly the most adult and disturbing of all of Disney's villains. But one thing that came up that we did not expect was that there's some discussion of police brutality, um, specifically in context of the Portland riots. So if that's something that's a little bit too real for your D&D Disney podcast, it's when we're talking about closing the borders. It's around the 50-minute mark or so. You'll know when it's starting because it's at the moment that Portland gets name-dropped, and it lasts for about two minutes. So that's all. Enjoy the episode. The Wonderful World of Dark Lords Report 10, Part 1 Notre Dame As with so many pilgrims and travelers who have made the journey to Notre Dame, the first thing I saw and heard was the breathtaking cathedral that gives the city its name, a marvel of stained glass, spires, and statuary, with its mighty bells ringing the hour. I have never felt a particular devotion to Ezra, yet even I felt a stirring of piety when I gazed upon the gently smiling sculpture of Our Lady of the Mists. After my encounter with Dr. Facilier, I hoped that a brief visit to the cathedral might lend me a sense of peace, calming my thoughts for the work ahead of me. Before I had gotten halfway to the square, however, shouts erupted in the street around me, and a nearby building burst into flames. Coughing and struggling to clear the smoke from my eyes, I found myself in the middle of a riot, and the town guard was using fire and sword to quite literally smoke the rioters out, with little care as to who was an agitator and who was a mere bystander. Above both the chaos and the heavy hand of the law, Ezra's statue smiled serenely on, the tranquility of the cathedral a stark contrast to the turmoil in the city's heart. Welcome to Wonderful World of Dark Lords. I'm Tom. I'm Rachel. And I'm Chris. What? 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 <laughs> <laughs> you, please keep the pause. By all means, you just have to, like... <laughs> <laughs> As though I had crashed your podcast, and you're like, you're, you're, who are you? Course, you're, we're so happy to see you, Chris. Welcome, Chris, our very first guest host. Yes, very exciting. Yeah, very exciting for me, too. And a very first guest host to Wonderful World of Dark Lords, and we're discussing how to convert Disney movies to Ravenloft Domains of Dread, because you can take the kid out of the 90s, but you can't take the 90s out of the kid. Along the way, we'll look at the Dark Lord, the domain itself, and some plot hooks and adaptation ideas to integrate the setting into your own campaign. Today's episode, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Happy Lent, everyone! Our previous one was the joyous celebration of Mardi Gras, and now we're in the most Catholic and penitential of seasons, so we had to choose the most Catholic and penitential of Disney movies. And Frollo does not approve of this Mardi Gras nonsense. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, Chris, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about why we could not, in good conscience, condemn Frollo to a hell of his own creation without inviting you along for the ride? Well, thank you. That's that's very flattering. Um 
I am a uh, I'm a podcaster from a variety of podcasts. I'm mainly on other people's podcasts right now, but I started with the Gameable podcast, uh, which was a series of podcasts that started with the Gameable Disney podcast. And on that podcast, we talked about all of the various animated Disney movies and uh, talked about their gaming potential for role-playing games. And Frollo was our sort of champion villain. We had like a, an ongoing villain leaderboard. <laughs> and uh, he he turned out to be sort of like our biggest, best Disney villain. And so the Hunchback of Notre Dame episode turned out to be in large part about him. And not the three annoying gargoyles, surprising everyone. <laughs> Obviously, True villains of the movie. <laughs> uh, Look, they're they're what is... makes the movie so penitential, yes. <laughs> when Frollo's on screen, I'm happy. When the gargoyles are on screen, I'm not happy. Draw your own conclusions. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with the character of Frollo, have podcasted about him before. And there's another podcast, very little <laughs> listener overlap with this one, probably, uh, called Hard Choices that mentioned Frollo. I also had strong opinions about him there. Adult listeners may wish to go check out Hard Choices, the Disney Villains episode for that. Yes, Hard Choices, our PG-rated, family-friendly version of this. You talk about how much you want to date certain characters. This is how we explain it to we'll our say. children. Yes, I have mentioned this podcast to my children before. I'm a terrible mother. <laughs> but so Chris was forced against his will to imagine being Frollo's boyfriend mm -hmm. and has been rearing to send him to Ravenloft ever since. <laughs> And we were both huge fans of the game Google yes. Disney. That's actually kind of how we got to know Chris. We first started to communicate with each other. And it as, started as a parasocial relationship. Right, yeah, it became, became a social relationship. relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we said in the pilot that Google Disney's kind of, we see this podcast as sort of a spiritual successor, that we want to do a lot of the same analysis and the same putting this story through the gaming framework we're just much more Ravenloft specific. Yes. Everybody, if you haven't listened to the Gameable podcast, go do that. It's fantastic. It's very good. I, I mentioned in the pilot every time I listen to it, I, I learned something as a writer and a GM. Just, I'm going to embarrass Chris. Go, go, go listen <laughs> to it. <laughs> Especially the Hunchback of Notre Dame one. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I think that this, part of what I really like about this podcast is that it's like, what I wanted out of doing Gameable, but I don't have to do the work. Like, I don't have to edit anything. I just get to listen to it. Um, and the uh, the Ravenloft perspective, because Ravenloft is so, it gives you such a strong lens to look at all these things. And it's one that I'm not super familiar with. As the listener may glean uh, as we go, despite <laughs> Rachel's efforts as a GM, I continue not to know one thing about Ravenloft. But I do like hearing other people talk about it. So yeah, yeah, this is it is it is a worthy successor to Gameable. This podcast, well, thank you. I, I enjoyed thank it a lot. You. Very sweet to hear. So speaking of Frollo being the absolute worst of the worst when it comes to Disney villains, as they say on Ao3, Frollo is his own content warning. <laughs> oh like, boy! Yeah, we are going to be talking today about a racist, genocidal spiritually abusive, emotionally abusive predator. Am I missing Physically anything? Abusive, Physically abusive. Physically abusive. Everything. Yeah, all the All abusers. the boxes on the yeah. police <laughs> So we're going to try to soft pedal some of these as much as we can until we get to the aging up section. But there's only so yeah, much right. of that you can do while still talking about Frollo. Most of the time, there's sort of the subtext. Mm-hmm of some very adult content and themes. Mm -hmm. And that means for a lot of the majority of the podcast, we can just kind of be vibing the subtext. This is not that podcast. This is we, not that movie. We talked about in our Beauty and the Beast episode that Beauty and the Beast has a lot of subtext that Notre Dame makes text. And part of that is you know, 
Gaston has a vibe, but it's just a vibe. Frollo, it is not just a vibe. And we are going to, for most of the episode, it's pretty much going to be Strahd levels. Strahd also has this very, you know, right. stalkery vibe to him. I know there are some people who cannot play Curse of Strahd because Strahd reminds them too much of real-life horrible men. And if that's you, you're probably going to want to skip this episode. Yeah, yeah. If you're okay with Curse of Strahd, you're probably going to be okay with this. We'll get into more detail when we get to the aging up section about whether or not you're going to want to skip that. But that's about the level we're going to be sticking to in that area. Also, if you're listening with kids in the room... We can't promise that we're not going to ever say words that rhyme with textual before we get to the aging up section. Yeah. We normally try to keep that's that out. That's on Disney, all right? Yeah, that's on Disney. Like, we were not <laughs> standing there smelling Esmeralda's scarf, guys. That was all Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as we want to be dropping massive swear words about Frollo, we're not going to be doing that. But we are going to be touching on the adult content a little more explicitly than usual. So yeah, just yeah. be warned if, if you listen with your kids in the room. It's just a blanket content warning for the whole thing. And then, of course, <laughs> we will have the more specific aging up stuff. Yeah. And hopefully you've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame and yeah. know where we're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame and will appreciate there being a content warning on this podcast, unlike <laughs> the film, which yeah. if you had no concept of the original work and were just like, oh, like the next Disney movie in line, I'll get this for the kids. Kids, I, as a parent, would be upset. And speaking of content warnings, okay, so, Hunchback of Notre Dame, <laughs> one of the major themes that the movie, greatly worthy of admiration, picks up mm-hmm. is prejudice and discrimination against the Roma. It uses language that is not really the correct language to use. Of course, you can make the argument that this is what many of the characters would be saying, but not all of the characters, and honestly, I don't think it's that intentional. Mm-hmm. So this is not a thing we want to necessarily make a prejudice against a real-world discriminated against racial group mm-hmm. as part of our fun dork project. <laughs> so we are going to talk about the Travelers, and that the Travelers, we're talking more about them later, but basically that's our version of the Roma, or what the book and the movie would call the Gypsies. Also, there's an obvious analog in Ravenloft, which is the Vistani, and there are some pros to having the Vistani kind of take the role of Esmeralda's people, the Roma, in this story. But once again, that's a whole other can Mm -hmm, of worms. mm -hmm. So we'll talk a bit more about the Travelers later, but understand when we talk about the Travelers, when we use that term, that is who we are referring to in our version, our Ravenloft Ted version (laughs) of Hunchback of Notre Dame. If you are listening to this podcast, we hope you've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame, and if not, you should watch it. It is a very good movie with a couple of asterisks, and it is really fascinating, especially, I think, as a cultural artifact of a particular point in the Disney Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And if you are our age, you probably remember seeing that, and you remember having it blow your mind, because (laughs) you can argue this is the most adult in a lot of good ways and bad ways of the Disney Renaissance, and a big part of that is the character of Judge Claude Frollo. And that is one of the people we first thought of when we were coming up with doing Dark Lords based on Disney characters, because he is a person with such psychological complexity. He makes an excellent Dark Lord, which is why he is our Dark Lord. And we will talk more about him as a Dark Lord in the section we call... The Lord. The Lord. After I assumed Gash's form and escaped the guards, I was able to begin my survey of the city. According to the citizens, Notre Dame was once a capital city, but became cut off from its surrounding nation due to a combination of wars from without the city and riots from within. 
I have my suspicions on this front, but I will hold them until my analysis of the city itself. In any case, during the chaos, Judge Claude Frollo took control and proclaimed himself the Viceroy and Warden of Notre Dame. Frollo was a man known for his devotion to Ezra, his pitiless retribution against lawbreakers, and his fanatical hatred of the Travelers, an ethnic group that he blames for seemingly every crime and misdemeanor in the city. He is convinced that if the Travelers were eliminated, the masses would yield willingly to his firm but prudent hand. Given his disdain for the masses themselves, this seems unlikely. There is one particular Traveler whom Frollo pursues above all others, a dancer named Esmeralda. I am uncertain of exactly what Esmeralda did to earn the Viceroy's ire. Beyond vague accusations of witchcraft, the only concrete charges were freeing a prisoner and inciting a riot, and the latter is almost commonplace in Notre Dame. But those suspected of aiding or abetting her are subject to torture and execution. In theory, any criminal who provides information about her whereabouts can have their sentence commuted. Given the dearth of freed prisoners, I doubt that Frollo has ever made good on this promise. When I spoke to Frollo in person in order to secure a more detailed interview on the morrow, I gained more insight on its obsession with Esmeralda. Frollo provided exhaustively detailed descriptions of how Esmeralda used her witchcraft to inflame the passions of the people. I suspect execution is not the only fate he has in mind for her. So once again, sort of unusual for us, the actual villain is the villain. Though I think we've had a good one of those. <laughs> I think we're done with our right. destroying D is your... for deconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> and as you mentioned, this is one of the great villains. And we are doing a thing we do with a lot of these, because most of them end with the villain falling off a cliff, screaming and disappearing into the unknown. <laughs> and that doesn't work for a Dark Lord. And this is another one of those, the villain 1AU, which as I mentioned is most of them. And this isn't as comprehensive a change as we've done with some of these others. This is almost like what we did with Lion King. Mm-hmm. We're sort of taking this particular point in Act 2 where the villain, where Frollo is ascendant. And we are kind of saying, and then that for like a year. And there's a mm-hmm. couple of tweaks we're making to the backstory to kind of explain that. But really, like the whole thing we're going for is what if this five-minute stretch of the movie was the status quo for like a year Mm -hmm. in uh, Notre Dame, which is what we're calling the city as well as the cathedral, which we'll get to later. Yeah, what's interesting to me is Frollo necessitates this because his plot arc drives the movie so much. So it's like you have to, you know, to rather than sort of having, and they all lived miserably ever after, it's like <laughs> you just sort of like, you have to take the part of his arc where he's on top and can be encountered as being in charge and extend it long enough to get some adventurers in there because mm-hmm. he's such a tragic character that I feel like if you just made it so that he doesn't get his comeuppance at the end, not only is it a bummer, but it's like a betrayal of the character in a sense. Yeah, because he, he has to get his up uh-huh, he's just yeah. the worst. <laughs> <laughs> he's self-destructive. Like, I mean, he's, mm-hmm. it, it's so internal. It's not like the sword bounces off Maleficent. Like, that's one thing, you know, <laughs> but it's like, this is a man who is destroying himself. And so it would be weird for that to just suddenly stop and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, hopefully you've seen the movie, you know what a Frollo is, but we're saying Frollo is the Dark Lord of this domain. So, Rachel, what is a Dark Lord and why did Chris just describe what makes Frollo a good one? <laughs> Well, a Dark Lord is an evil being who commits some kind of act of ultimate darkness, and the Dark Powers take a look at them and say, why, hello, new friend, and they pluck them out of wherever they were and 
put them into a special hell made just for them. There are good Dark Lords, there are not so good Dark Lords. We've come up with four qualities that we think really separate the Strahd von Sarovichs from the Uruk von Karkovs. <laughs> and we are going to go through those four qualities and explain how they apply to Strahd von Sarovich, the Ur-Dark Lord. And then talk about how they apply to Frollo and why it is that he was one of the big ones that we looked yeah, at and said, so good. he's a Dark Lord right out of the tin. He's like Scar. So our first quality is that act of ultimate darkness. And in Strahd's case, it was that there was this woman that he was really into who wasn't into him. And he was just, but the sun cut in her copper hair was blazing in him out of all control. So he had to do something about it, which was killing his brother. Our second quality is that they have what Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft calls the Torment. We're a Disney podcast, so we call it They Got What They Wanted, They Lost What They Had. Strahd, congratulations, your brother is out of the picture, but wait a minute, Tatiana is also out of the picture. You have everything that you thought you wanted, but the dark powers have taken away the thing that you really wanted the most. Our third element is that element of tragedy and relatability. They're not just evil for the sake of being evil. There's something about it them that makes us kind of wince in sympathy, and in Strahd's case, it's that unrequited love is awful. And then the fourth element is that the domain reflects the Dark Lord and their curse in some way. You know, Strahd, he is the Lord of Barovia, which is a vampire land. He is not the Lord of Daemon Lu, which is creepy fairy tale land. That would not properly reflect Strahd at all. So that's what makes Strahd a good Dark Lord. Let's talk about Frollo and what makes him a good Dark Lord. So we start with the Act of Ultimate Darkness, and this is where we have one of our big divergence points. Mm -hmm. It's a small divergence point in terms of plot mechanics, but a big one in terms of some of the metaphysics of what we're talking about. So we are kind of, you know, camera in, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Esmeralda is in the cathedral, and Quasimodo's going to help her escape, and, you know, so far so good. And we have Hellfire, which, you know, you know, it's the best. It's yeah. <laughs> like, that's our, mm -hmm. our keystone. That's our foundation point that everything is building on Hellfire. Mm -hmm. As we would be failing in our job as Ravenloft podcasters to not have everything built on Hellfire. When we were brainstorming this, Tom pitched it to me as, I want this to be Hellfire, but forever. Yeah. <laughs> which is honestly a good description of Ravenloft. Yeah, Ravenloft, right. <laughs> so. So we are imagining this is not just an internal, trippy, awesome manifestation of his very complicated self. That this is actually a demon or some kind of infernal power. Or the dark powers themselves. Or the dark powers themselves approaching him and offering him as Esmeralda in exchange for his soul. So in our version, he has sold his soul in that moment. And they will get into more stuff later. But basically, they've given him this power to make Esmeralda his own. And, but then she escapes. So he kind of has this unfired, you know, fembot gun that he can use <laughs> if he gets a hold of her. So that's sort of part of it is he wants to get a hold of her. So we are kind of in that stretch of the movie where he's like, 20 pieces for Esmeralda. And he's hunting her and he's persecuting the travelers and he's cracking down on them harder and harder. And he's burning stuff down. And it's kind of been that for like a year. Like mm -hmm. that's our status quo. And also at this point, Quasimodo has helped Esmeralda escape, and we're starting to have those cracks in the relationship, but we haven't had that big betrayal with the Court of Nero. Mm -hmm. So he still is kind of seeing Frollo as his master, seeing Frollo as his friend, believing Frollo is good, 
but there is that kind of crack there that he did help Esmeralda escape, and he's starting to question some of the things he's been taught. And someone like a PC could exploit mm. that. <laughs> <laughs> and also we are cutting the bit where Frollo tries to, like, burns down the mill with Phoebus there, and that caused Phoebus to turn against him. So once again, we're, like, right before that. Like, pause the VCR right before <laughs> that scene since the 90s. And that's where we are. That's our status quo. Because we want to have it be that Phoebus is still the captain of the guard, but he is growing increasingly reluctant, increasingly hesitant. Every day, he's sort of turning his heart a little more away from Frollo, but he does still feel duty-bound to obey. Mm -hmm. Because once again, we'll get into this a little later, that's a really good place to insert some PCs. And I'm going to jump in here real quick, because the idea of Frollo kind of literally selling his soul was my baby. If you've been looking at some of the stuff for getting inspiration for gothic jamming and whatnot in your deep dive into Ravenloft nerddom, which I assume I'm not the only one who's done, one of the books that keeps getting mentioned is The Monk by Matthew Lewis, which, speaking of all the content warnings, you guys, like, yeah, but there is a character in there, the titular monk is very Frollo-esque. He's this very, like, repressed, seems so good on the outside, but on the inside is just this corrupt hypocrite. And, of course, it being a morality tale and everything, the literal devil is on this, like, quite on rice and is kind of able to exploit his pride and get him to sell his soul while making him think that it's actually like an angel or Mary or God talking to him. And that just that has Frollo written all over yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah. The, Frollo is doing this prayer that's actually a prayer to himself and <laughs> something answers it and he thinks it's Ezra or whatever God you want to have him be worshipping, but it's not. It's the dark powers, the demon, the whatever. Yeah, I do think it's important. Like the selling his soul is... That's a great, like, decisive moment that fits really well with Hellfire, but it's almost arbitrary because there are so many moments of evil in Frollo, but it's a character who works on multiple levels because he he is such an, a force of evil in his world, but there's also the question of sort of his own standards for himself. Mm-hmm. And so there's a level on which, like, selling his soul is a a decisive act. You know, it's something he is doing intentionally that at least a little bit breaks through his sort of self-righteous delusion, whereas some of the other things he does are floating around in an area of like uncertainty about how wrong he knows he is and how much he's Mm -hmm. successfully deluded himself. And so that's why it's like because when we were when we were discussing this, I was thinking, I mean, he's already raised Quasimodo in a horrific way by this Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. You know, he he already is guilty of a tremendous amount of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. The genocide's been happening for a yeah, while. Right. There. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Torturing yeah. people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's not even that, like, it's not that those things are less evil, but that he's able to make some kind of excuse internally for mm-hmm. them. So it's almost like this is this is like signing his name to something that he's, it's a corruption that's been going on for a while for him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. And part of it is, on the one hand, if you look at the canon of Ravenloft, there's a lot of kind of like <laughs> real weak sauce, active ultimate darkness, because we're just trying to make the plot happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have that whole, it's kind of helpful that we're coming at this from the perspective of the dark powers, And these aren't necessarily agents of morality as much Mm -hmm. as they are agents of torment. Mm. And that sort of the act of ultimate darkness, it's not even necessarily what we would say is the objectively immoral action. As it is kind of the perfect moment to snap the trap for maximum like torment Mm. of this person. 
because like that's their objective right mm. like this you know on the one hand just this is what we want to do this makes the movie work but on the other hand yeah as chris was saying there is a kind of categorical difference here you know even with it's pretty horrible he was going to throw a baby down a well because it was ugly and <laughs> Like, that could be an act of adult darkness for many people. Mm-hmm. But then you do have the sort of felt a twinge of fear for his immortal soul. That, like, he's got just enough conscience left to stop himself from doing that. So he's not quite crossing the line. And mm-hmm. that selling his soul might not be the, like, most objectively evil thing he does on an average day. <laughs> but it's crossing a line he's never crossed before. And it's crossing a line that he that knows he, yeah. is a line. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of it. Like, he can't make himself believe that this is the right thing to do. Speaking of torment and right, maximum yeah. torment, let's, let's talk about that a bit. Right, so this yeah, segs in a torment. Our second element. And the torment kind of has two-ish levels, maybe more, depending on how you want to categorize mm-hmm. this. And on the surface, the sort of obvious, the like AD&T write-up torment is <laughs> that he can't get Esmeralda. He sold his soul for nothing. He will never get her. She will never be his fembot. She will never <laughs> be like his object to serve him. And that's the torment. He sold his soul to get her. He will never get her. So that's the agony. And that's that's okay. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. good for like a like a second that's, edition. That's, that's diet strad. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> but there's a much more interesting, deeper way of looking at this torment, and that is something we were talking about when we were brainstorming this with Chris. And it's going to touch on a little bit. We talked about the domain reflecting the Dark Lord, but oh, it's so good. There's so oh much <laughs> externalization of the internal. Frollo perceives sin, and he perceives sin in himself and his desires. And he perceives sin in what he sees as the immoral actions of the people. But he has this externalization that he keeps saying to himself, if I can just find this outside thing that's making the sin and destroy it, it'll be gone. So like we have the whole big part of Hellfire is that part of him wants to have Esmeralda and part of him wants to destroy Esmeralda because he blames her for the feelings that he's having that he perceives as sin and weakness. So that torment is that it'll never work. No matter how many people he burns at the stake, Mm -hmm. no matter how many moral laws he makes and what he bans and what he forbids and how many informers he pays to tell him when people are whistling on the Sabbath, that (laughs) there will always be sin. And there will mm-hmm. always be sin in Paris, and there will always be sin in his heart, and he will just more and more, he will kill whoever it takes till he stops rubbing the scarf against his face. <laughs> and that's never going to happen, ever. Mm. So he will, every day is that torment, and that's delicious for the dark powers. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is like, one of the things that's compelling about his situation as a torment is that from a perspective of faith, it is such a nightmare, because basically what the dark powers are doing in this scenario to make this torment work is simply taking away the sting of conviction from him, the sting of like, this is wrong, mm-hmm. I can tell like the absence of God in what I'm doing so that he's allowed to just freewheel in his self-delusion. He thinks he's on this quest to eliminate sin. And if he if he were not being sort of just so subtly prevented from realizing that he's on the wrong path, he maybe could realize. But his continued ability to believe that he is righteous in this, that little blind spot 
is enough that, you know, he can just get worse and worse and worse and continue to think that he must be almost there to the point where he somehow achieves sinlessness from this worse and worse behavior. And it's got the great parallel with the city. And we'll talk about this more of the setting stuff, but the city, he sees immorality, he sees what he perceives as vice and sin and drunkenness and all that. And he blames the travelers and he's like, oh, if I can just find the court of miracles, if I can just sort of burn this corrupting influence, people will be righteous. Like, he can't get the people of the city to behave correctly. He can't get his own heart to behave what he sees as correctly. And in both cases, it's about destroying what he perceives as the external cause of that. And that'll never work. Mm-hmm. And it's delicious. It's a thing that comes up in self-help stuff a lot of the, if you blame everyone else for your problems, it's you know, obviously it's bad because you're making everyone's life miserable. But it's also bad because you're making yourself miserable because ultimately you can't control the actions of others, but you can control your own actions and kind of your own reactions <laughs> to things. And if Frollo just were to accept this fact yeah, yeah, yeah. and say, okay, I need to like get a handle on my own heart and like work on these feelings. And if I don't want to have these feelings, then I need to work on not right, having exactly. these feelings. Then he could do that. But since he's externalizing everything, no, it's Esmeralda's fault. She's the one doing this to him. Well, he can't control Esmeralda. He can't stop her from being beautiful and right. not wanting anything to do with him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's always going to be trying to stop other people from doing things. And it's never going to work because he's not going to where the actual problem is, which is inside himself. And, and this is a good segue to our element of tragedy. Here <laughs> yeah. Which, Chris, why did you talk about yeah, this? Because right? we've, we've, been, we've been talking a lot. <laughs> oh, <wow>. And, uh, <laughs> and this, is, well, this is something that you've had going on in your head for like a decade now. So. <laughs> well, I, first of all, it should be clear to the listener that the reason that they are talking more than I am is because they have been doing a lot of the work on this and I have been like coasting on the script that they've written. So I'm interjecting <laughs> the occasional point. I'm not being crowded out of this conversation, just so everybody knows. No, I will definitely talk about this. Thank you for thinking of me, by the way, for this segment. Uh, we can all relate to Frollo because uh, all of us are... I just um, realized that's kind of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah, right. Why don't you tell us about Frollo, how, how much you like, how much you're like him. No, I'll, I'll take it from here. Cool. I, I think let me let me just tell the listeners what it's like to be like a real jerk, like a real hypocrite. Um, it, no, it is truly it is, I think, universally relatable like that, that urge, you know, to look out of yourself for the cause of the things you don't like about yourself and the way that you're like, and again, to look at a specifically religious angle on this the temptation to use God as a prop to put yourself on the right side of Mm -hmm. conflicts where you really need to be like interrogating yourself. I think that that and then like the the downward spiral that can cause of setting yourself up against others through this self-righteousness so that then everything they do to resist your sort of trespasses against them becomes like more evil of which they are guilty. And so like, I think that that is, whether it's like in a personal relationship, um, you know, kind of making the other person out to be the bad guy, whether it's just like your general situation in life, whether it is sort of the bigotry that Frollo is guilty of. I think people to greater or lesser degrees are guilty of that constantly, more or less, Mm -hmm. identifying groups of people as the problem. All of that is something that I think even those of us who try not to fall into that often can find ourselves on the precipice of it because it hurts so much to see that you are responsible. You are the things you don't like about yourself and it's Mm. not somebody else's doing. And you do have to clean up that mess if you want it cleaned up. 
And almost anything is emotionally preferable to coming face to face with that. Like everyone that remembers this movie and feels affection for this movie remembers Hellfire. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because it's amazing, which everything about it is amazing. I remember it was watching the making of stuff and they were saying that like when they were storyboarding the scene and pitching it, all of the like department heads wanted to be involved. Like, the head of layout was like, I'll do layout for this scene. The head of that coloring was like, I'll do coloring for this scene. <laughs> because they're like, this is amazing. This is special. This is one for the ages. But because it is, once again, such this moment of psychological complexity, but moment of this very universal, like, you can't help but feel a little bit for Frollo because we all have that. It's the desire. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm, I'm not, not to play. Exactly, yeah. And the, the back and forth of, I want to have her, I want to destroy her, I want to indulge these feelings, I want to, like, destroy her so I don't have these feelings anymore. Like, that's such a complex and human and relatable, messy set of emotions. And mm -hmm. I think it's part of why it's stuck with people yeah. so much as one of, like, the great Disney musical sequences. Yeah, I think particularly the moment when the hooded figures around him are saying mea culpa and he mm -hmm. kind of shoots back reflexively mm -hmm. like i am not to blame that is the sort of tragically recognizable moment of very deliberately missing that exit like okay mm -hmm. you messed up it's your fault you could see that it's your fault all you have to do now is admit it to start fixing things and your first instinct is to fight back like no i didn't do anything wrong <laughs> <laughs> the part that always gets me is the very end when he he says, the God have mercy on her, God have mercy on me, but she will be mine or she will burn. And so first off, that he actually has the moment of grace to pray for Esmeralda. Mm -hmm. Just like, for, for Frollo, that's like, you have to grade on a curve for him. Right, that's like yeah. a triple plus. <laughs> And then that when the way he sings God oh, Have so Mercy good. on Me, you get he really gets how rock bottom he is. But then rather than confront that and dig deeper, he doubles down and mm. she will be mine or she will burn. Like he was this close. Yeah, right. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see how close I'm holding they're, my they're fingers. Very together. close together. But, but yeah, he was he was feeling something approaching empathy and compassion for Esmeralda. He was recognizing that he needed God's mercy. And then he was like Nope, actually, never mind, I'm good. It's so good. You get in the song, there's all the coexisting layers. There's the externalization that it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. It's all her fault. Mm -hmm. There's the, I, so I want to destroy her. There's the, gosh, I don't want to destroy her. I want to have her. <laughs> there's the, like, the little just splinter of, I'm holding my fingers close together too, splinter of <laughs> conscience some level he knows this is wrong some mm -hmm. level he sees what he's doing but he just can't stop himself he mm -hmm. can't pull out and that's what makes it fun for the dark powers is that yeah. that splinter of conscience <laughs> just is always going to be in his psyche working him and itching him and worrying him and driving him to greater and greater active self-justification but there is going to be that little sliver of conscience that he knows he's doing the wrong thing yeah all you can eat dark powers before. so good so that's our element of tragedy and relatability is the just very human desire to externalize the things we don't like in ourselves, And that's connected with our domain reflecting the Dark Lord. This, I really love this part. 
This <laughs> is different than a lot of these we've done because a lot of times it's a very aesthetic reflection. So in a lot, this is a lot of the classic Ravenloft. It's mm-hmm. Barovia. It's spooky Transylvania. It's Lamordia. It's spooky Frankenstein. It's Arendelle. It's ice because I found hard. Spooky cold it's a winter. Spooky ice. And this <laughs> one is a bit more like the Pride Lands, where that is, it's the externalization. But in this case, it's in a different way. Like, the obvious thing to do would be this just, it's a domain of hypocrites. It's everybody pretends to be good, but is really evil. Oops, all Frollos. But that's not what we see. And that we really see Frollo in contrast to the city and in contrast to the setting. And this is kind of, once again, a rose out of our conversation of the sort of the secondary level of the psychology of this. It's not just his only heart he can't control or can't kind of tame. It's the city. And the, the city this is the way it's an externalization. It's like his heart. It is full of people that refuse to behave correctly. And it is full of people that continually sin in his eyes. And he blames this external source of the travelers. He explains the court of miracles. And that's his continual quest to sort of find the court of miracles and purge what he sees as this corrupting influence is that externalization of his desire to sort of purge his own sin, what he sees as his own sin, by killing Esmeralda. Or maybe just having her in his basement. Yeah, and I would take that a step further, because I think that's definitely true of like of all the, the people, and particularly the travelers, the way they relate to that. You were talking about that little bit of conscience within Frollo, which I don't know exactly how I would characterize that, but I think metaphorically you can see that in the cathedral, where it's like, there mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. that is sacred in the city, but it is falling into a worse and worse state. It is being sort of gradually desecrated by Frollo's treatment of it because he is so driven. It's not enough for it to be authentically like what it is. He's not really willing to submit himself to it. Instead, he is on this mission to wipe out this sinful influence in the city. And so by like keeping Quasimodo there, his treatment of the Archdeacon, like his violation of sanctuary at the end of the story, all of these things, it's like metaphorically Frollo is kind of like There's one good thing in Frollo, generously, Mm -hmm. and it's that little (laughs) vestige of faith, which he is gradually destroying in the quest of what he's doing. I really like this point, that the the parallel, I didn't think about this, it's so good, thank you, the sliver of conscience, and then we have the cathedral, Mm. and that is sort of the bit of this external holiness and this even parallels with the beginning with uh, you can never run or hide what you've done. You can never outrun from nor hide what you've done from the eyes. The eyes of the Notre Dame. eyes of Notre Dame. And he's like looking around. The saints mm-hmm. are looking at him and he has that like twinge of conscience. And yeah, the paralleling of the cathedral and his conscience, once again, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> we're just ray- living a little Ravenloft flavor. When we were brainstorming this, I had to leave the room for toddler duty at one point, and I was getting the updates on Google Docs, <laughs> and we were remotely communicating with our brainstorming. But the thing that made me just start squealing from the other room was the image of the ants that Frollo was talking about, that the travelers are like ants, and you're trying to smush them out one by one, but they're everywhere. And it's horrible and gross and awful. But then you take it, you say, well, it's also the image of this kind of describing his sins and the way he sees himself, and that he's trying to find some way to just, like, uproot all the sin from inside himself at one go. Except he's not trying to uproot it from inside himself, he's trying to uproot it from the city. (laughs) And that doesn't work. And Frollo, you hot mess of a garbage pile. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. 
So that segues into one thing with our backstory that we did leave out when we were discussing kind of our alternate timeline. And that's since we are looking at this having lasted a long time, that we're kind of in the three minutes after Hellfire Hmm. for at least a year, possibly more. We've rolled back around to the time when the Feast of Fools would be happening again. But Frollo's decided this is a time of just it's too much chaos. It's too much revelry. It's too much opportunity for sin. So he's actually banned the Feast of Fools. But the problem is that the Feast of Fools is a pressure valve. There's a reason why the liturgical calendar has stuff like Mardi Gras in it. Because, you know... Even if you have just the most negative possible view of the Catholic Church, it recognizes that you need a Mardi Gras before your Lent. And Frollo does not realize this. He is just, he's banned the feast all Lent all the time, which is why we're doing this for our March episode. So the Feast of Fools has been banned. And so all of this time when people would normally be able to let out this pressure in a harmless, fun way, they can't. And it's just building and building and building. So everything is getting worse. We're going to talk about this more when getting into the setting, but we're really going to be digging in this idea of order and chaos. Mm -hmm. And the Feast of Fools is fascinating to look at as a cultural thing and as a kind of contact point between those ideas of order and chaos, that it is, as Rachel said, a kind of pressure valve and that it is almost like ordered chaos. Mm-hmm. Like it is chaos, but it's chaos that's like on the calendar <laughs> and has like a start point and an end point. And the fact that you can look at that as a sign of a very healthy society, but that that, of course, healthy and Frollo don't exist in the same solar system in any context. So of course, Frollo is going to take this kind of necessary compromise to the sort of impulse to chaos and the impulse to rebellion. But Frollo's great at compromise, Sonny. What are you talking about? He's not great at compromise. (laughs) He's going to take that thing that has, you know, existed for centuries as this kind of mutually agreed upon pressure valve and be like, no, it's sinful. It's terrible. It's gone. We're just going (laughs) to make everything better if we ban that. And spoiler, it's not going to make everything better when they ban it. (laughs) I really love this detail because it points out the sort of the failure of imagination and the failure of like basic understanding of his faith that Frollo's trapped in. Like the image with the ants. It's like, this is for the ants. That's the point of having this is because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's for the people of the city. And the fact that you're trying to wipe them out so you can have a perfect cathedral is like, it's such a basic misunderstanding that it, <laughs> that it turns his in, the tenets of his entire faith dark. And in the same way, this Feast of Fools thing, it's like Frollo's unwillingness to acknowledge that human beings exist and are human <laughs> beings, is it dooms him completely. Like, there is no possible success scenario for him. And the best he could hope for would be desolation, because nothing will ever meet his standards until he has destroyed everyone that he is supposed to be judging on behalf of. Yeah. That's so good. Speaking of him destroying people, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about how we present him as a Dark Lord. So we start with the base stats. And that is, we're going to use the base stats for Cult Fanatic. This was really this hard. Is really hard. Frollo's yeah, he's not, not very D&D. He's not very D&D. <laughs> so we're starting base stats for Cult Fanatic and then adding a bunch of abilities. So we're adding, obviously, fire-based spells. It is nice and a good sort of tip for building this character of, like, how do we take a D&D character and make them more Frollo-like and also something you'd have a boss fight with. And that's just sort of a very skinny old man. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, you could hit over the head pretty easily. <laughs> well, uh, no, in Frollo's defense, skinny old man you could knock out easily is like one or two whole character classes in D&D. So this is not a new problem. <laughs> That's fair. And so obviously first is the fire. That you know, He has this obsession with fire, this obsession with burning, the constant imagery of fire, the idea of like the purifier and the destroyer. And this is kind of what Chris was saying. It's sort of almost his ideal is to burn everything mm-hmm. down to ash. And thus it is purified, but thus it is also destroyed. And there's nothing left. So we give him a bunch of fire powers, right? Like burning hands, fireball, like a bunch of fire spells. And we also added some intimidation and we added the Gesh spell. We're pronouncing it right this time. Unlike Frollo, we learned from our mistakes. So. <laughs> <laughs> because he does have this authority. And one of the big powers he has is his authority over the city and over sort of the law and the guards and the soldiers. And so this idea of command, that he can command you and resisting causes damage. We can look at a couple points in the movie and go, oh, Quasimodo is taking psychic damage yeah. because he's disobeying Frollo. He almost has this supernatural compulsion to obey Frollo. In Hunchback, there is a line Esmeralda has when Quasimodo's showing her the view, and she says, I don't think the king himself has as good a view, and we're imagining that, yeah, there is a king, we'll get into this later, but basically Frollo is, as our domain lord, he's also kind of the civil ruler, that he's kind of acting as viceroy. So that gives him the non-character sheet, but very useful power mm-hmm. of being in charge of a lot of people with swords and armor. <laughs> but to get back to the more interesting D&D-ified version... We just, we kept coming back to Hellfire. We kept coming back to the fireplace. The vision of like Esmeralda dancing, Esmeralda turning into smoke as he reaches to embrace her. We kept coming back to that and we wanted to have kind of some version of that. So we have this power where he can, it's a version of control flames because he does have that because you could imagine Frollo like waving his hands and fire spreading as he waves his hands. Kind of like what we have with him burning the Miller's house down. But part of control flames is also you can make shapes in the flames. And it's not as perfect. It's like they wrote it just for us. (laughs) So we kind of have, and this will be all detailed in the write-up, the free write-up on DM skill, which we'll link to in the show notes. But basically, he can use that power. He can kind of give you your own dancing Esmeralda. And it's not literally Esmeralda, but it might be Esmeralda, depending on the PC. (laughs) And that he can sort of tempt you, and he can corrupt you, and he can show you these shapes that are sort of your worst desires, your darkest impulses, your worst self. Because that's sort of what we're seeing with Hellfire. He's kind of being shown his darkest impulses in the flames. And it's it's a thing that you guys were talking about when I came back from toddler care Mm -hmm. that was really cool and really insightful about Frollo, that for him, this doesn't even count as doing anything bad because this is how he sees everyone anyway. He's Mm -hmm. making you your worst self, but your worst self is who you are because you're not him. Right, yes, you're a sinner. Yeah, so if he's he's showing you this stuff, that that doesn't even count as bad if he's corrupting you because you're already corrupt, clearly. He is so much purer than and the common, vulgar, weak, mm-hmm. licentious crowd. That's you. You are the common, mm-hmm. you the PCs are the common, <laughs> vulgar, weak, licentious crowd, which is probably true. But that's what he shows. He's almost not just tempting you or corrupting you. It's the kind of interesting, the corruption is his idea of you. 
and then his idea of you is common, vulgar, greedy, weak, licentious. That's what he's showing you, and that can then reach in and corrupt you. Yeah, there's a really delicate balance here to hit with this character mechanically, because because I think that's exactly right. I think that his the way that he reshapes people is thematic, because he is sort of in the camp of reducing people to sinners as opposed to sort of recognizing them where they are. He's never willing to sort of acknowledge people's humanity, but he is willing to reduce them in his mind and in his actions to just sort of the sum of their sins. So you want mechanically for him to have that like corrupting ability, but at the same time, the whole thing about like his torment and his frustration, like the way that he relates to the people is you don't want him to be able to truly dictate like even though he is a character who's driven by control you don't want to give him a, a power where he can just mechanically control people <laughs> because mm-hmm. right right while that might work for a different character for him it's intrinsic to him and his story that he can't do that so i think that the the hellfire ability had to be really carefully balanced to make sure and like the guess that he has like you don't want to put up certainly a player character in a position where you just have to do what frollo tells you but it's important that Frollo be able to put you into a position where his presence sort of brings out the worst in you, because that is sort of what we see him doing to people in the film. And kind of part of the heroism is resisting that, even when that is a difficult path to kind of reject this corrupting judgment that Frollo is putting on you. So yeah, I'm very happy with the way that the that the Hellfire ability turned out. The corruption, that's easy to say, he corrupts you, but how to like recognize that mechanically was very tricky, because a lot of the spells are you're charmed, or like you're commanded and there isn't a spell because this is very abstract. Like you're the worst version of yourself. <laughs> like you could do something like an alignment ship, but that's also very abstract. So what we ended up deciding was actually finding the, in the DMG, there was the madness table and there was the indefinite madness. And a lot of the short term and long terms are much more like you're banana boats. You're like, you're rolling around on the ground, clucking like a chicken. But with the indefinite madness, you know, they wanted it to be, and I respect this, this decision, you're not you can't play this character anymore in an adventuring context. Which was a real problem with yeah, madness well, checks in Old Raven Love. But that, that is another story and will be told in another time. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I appreciate they're like, okay, we don't want this to be like, you think you're like a little chicken in a hat. And so... <laughs> Please tell me that's a real no, I Maybe. <laughs> I didn't look too closely at those. So they didn't want to have it be that like, yeah, your character's basically useless now forever unless you get like a greater restoration spell. So a lot of the indefinite madness table is like, yeah, you're a you're a jerk now. Mm. So they have ones like, drinking is the only thing that keeps me sane. I take whatever I want. I'm the only one that matters. So he's like, yes, you're like very flawed. You're very broken. You're suffering from trauma and expressing that trauma. But like, you're still playable as a PC. You can still go into a dungeon and steal a ruby from an idol. And because the whole indefinite madness basically are you're a big jerk now, that's kind of our corruption. So we're saying if you kind of fail your wisdom saves against Frola's corruption, you talk with the you know, GM and the player, look at the indefinite madness table and pick one that fits your character. Or come up with one on your own right, if you're yeah. like if you know exactly what the worst version of your PC would look like, which I I have never GM'd anyone who wouldn't be all over that prospect. So mm-hmm. Especially because we're building and then it goes away when you leave the domain. Because once mm-hmm. again, we don't want this to no, be like no. campaign destroying. <laughs> Congratulations. You're chaotic evil forever. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In terms of the counterbalance to that, going back to that kind of sliver of conscience, Notre Dame, Breaking Sanctuary, is we're also saying he sort of loses control of a lot of his powers when he does things that are wrong. 
what he does things that he that knows. He knows that's wrong. A critical yeah. point. <laughs> Pretty much everything he does is wrong. <laughs> but when he knows something is wrong and yet he does it, he, it gives him a bunch of negative penalties, like disadvantage on stuff. He loses control of some of his powers. So this big example is the as he's hunting as and he's getting like sweatier and more <laughs> disheveled. He takes levels of exhaustion when he does things that are wrong. And if he's taking those levels of exhaustion, then that's giving us some other negatives as well. Mm-hmm. He's just getting more and more unhinged to the point where he's just completely ignoring the idea of sanctuary and indeed threatening to burn the cathedral down. Yeah. Chris, those are the big things that you kept coming back to is that the, the violating sanctuary at the end being such a huge violation of his own moral code that at the end he just was completely unhinged yeah absolutely that dissonance that inability to to confront himself like when pushed to the limit i think sanctuary finally does that you know he he identifies with the evil of what he's doing and i I actually really like this um detail about you know exhaustion when he does something he knows is wrong because it gives your social characters who mm-hmm. sh- who need to be involved in this. Like, this is such a personal story. He is, just for all of our, like, emotional catharsis, somebody needs to tell Frollo exactly yes. what his problem is. <laughs> and that's going to be, like, ideally that's, like, a social character. The problem is you can't have Frollo, like, change his ways, really. You can't have the, him be like, you know what, you're right. Like, I'm really being unreasonable <laughs> right now. 20. I repent. <laughs> But I think it would be equally satisfying to the social player character to just get him, just to like nail him to the wall with your words. And like, he's still going to do it, but he cannot pretend that he's not wrong. And that then has a mechanical effect. Absolutely. This needs to be where like, if you're in the boss fight with Frollo, then the making those persuasion checks to point out his hypocrisy is as mechanically powerful and satisfying as punching him in the face with a big great axe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, closing the borders, there are some movies where we actually, like, see them close the border within <laughs> the movie. That doesn't quite happen here, but we really get a sense of thematically what it would look like. There's smoke, there's fire, there, you, you can't leave the domain because there's just too much fire. It pretty much writes itself. I mentioned when we did the Frozen one, I really love when there's kind of the alternative mists. Mm. And I really love in the canon Ravenloft, the some domains where you like you go through the mist and it starts getting colder and then you realize it's snow. Mm-hmm. And we use that for Frozen. Similarly, I really love the idea that like the mist here is smoke. Mm-hmm. And like you go in the mist and then it's kind of getting more acrid and you start coughing and you realize you're smelling smoke. And then you like you're in this cloud of smoke that you come out of and then you're in our domain. There's a great note to do here that actually comes to mind because I lived in Portland up until recently and so kind of got familiar with everybody's experiences with the riots there. I think the what would be great about the mist sort of turning into the smoke and having the closing of the borders of the domain have this like it's fire, it's smoke, and then it's also like suddenly it's against the rules for you to be here. Hmm. Um, It's very easy for authority figures to generate a situation where you are trapped into trespassing and therefore sort of like your your right to exist is taken away. And so Mm. you can now be like legally trapped, arrested. Um, So, you know, creating a situation where like you encircle people, then command them to disperse and then you won't let them leave. So then you can arrest Mm. them or, you know, like bottle people up so they can only leave one way so that it becomes like an unrest situation where you come in with nightsticks or whatever. That situation, like you're just moving through the mist and all of a sudden you are in an area you're not allowed to be in. And it's like you you immediately start as a trespasser, like you Mm. are a criminal and before you even know where you are, what's going on. And therefore, you deserve whatever they do to you. And that could be a very good closing the borders of like you're moving through the smoke 
and suddenly like infinity d6 guards <laughs> are surrounding you and arresting you and like pushing you back for mm-hmm. trespassing. Mm-hmm. So like leaving is forbidden metaphysically with closing the borders, but he can kind of express that legally by suddenly there's like infinite misgenerated guards that will push you back into the city. Mm-hmm. A great detail actually, again, coming from the riots, there was someone's account of um, having something like this happen to her and then having uh, the police come out and start chasing everybody around like individuals, like they pick somebody out and you just like run them down to exhaustion and like hiding and hearing the police laughing and chasing them. Oh, jeez having the guards like laughing and mocking you and chasing you through mm. the mists like that's become smoke uh, until they finally like, catch you that would be a terrifying way to enter this domain and i think like <clears throat> a nice signal of like this is the kind of place you're in wow my new goal is to live my life in such a way that i will never be fodder for brainstorming a dark lord's minions <laughs> Just, yeah, right. wow. <laughs> <laughs> So we also do in our discussion of the Dark Lord, we've got a lot of the psychology of Frollo, but let's do the <laughs> formal discussion of the psychology yes. of Frollo with the role-playing trait ideal, bond, and flaw. And in the Van Richten's Guide, these are quotes, so we, as much as possible, like to do them with quotes from our characters, from our movies. It can be a little tricky sometimes because we can't write our own quotes, and sometimes stuff makes sense in context, but we do our best. So we've asked our guest to prepare a set of quotes that he thinks are good reflections of Frollo's internality, probably all of Hellfire, and then some other (laughs) things. So, Chris, what are some quotes you think would be helpful for GMs to roleplay Judge Claude Frollo? All right, so I went through the script for the movie. These characters, I was very impressed, first of all, on a side note that, like, there's very little raw exposition, like, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do that, this is happening. It's like, it so much expresses character, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is great writing. But for podcast purposes, highly inconsiderate to the podcast who has to pick through and find, like, what's a quote that really says Frollo? Like, everything, everything he says. Um, yeah. So uh, here are some possible uh, quotes for ideals, though. I am guiltless. She ran. I pursued. Mm. Another one. It will take a firm hand to save the weak-minded from being so easily misled. Ooh, that's very good. I'm so much purer than the common, vulgar, weak, licentious crowd, of course. That's like the first thing to come to Mm -hmm. mind, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know that when Frollo, because he talks crap about the people a lot, so I'm sure he shortens it to like CVWL when he's talking to his other judge friends. (laughs) 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 It was my duty, horrible as it was. Uh, And finally, he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit, uh, which just seemed too dramatic not to include. Mm. Oh, those are good. I really like the thing about the farmhand. That's like this less obvious. Mm -hmm. Although I'm so much sure of them, the common vulgar weak license is clear. Okay, we gotta have that. Yeah, that's gotta be somewhere. But Frollo's one of those for like, that could be (laughs) the ideal, the trait, the bond. Yeah, it's all of the above. Yeah, It's Mm -hmm. all of them. It also depends on like what kind of what level you want to hit the character at, because part of what's interesting about Frollo, in fact, we're about to get a quote like this from, mm. from Bonds. Spoiler for Bonds, the quote, the world is cruel, the world is wicked, it's I alone whom you can trust in this whole city. Mm. It fascinates me that like, I think Frollo is smart enough to know that is a lie he's telling Quasimodo, but he also earnestly believes that. Mm-hmm. And so he's a character with levels. And so if you're picking his ideal, I think it depends on like for your own home game as a DM, Hmm. how deep do we want to get into his psychology? Like, does he really believe this is my sort of horrible duty and I'm sad to have to do it? On some level, he feels that way. But we also know that he has a passion for what he's doing. It is not a sad duty to him on a deeper level. But how much does he realize that? How much do we want to get into that? So it's complicated because of the layers of self-delusion, I think. Mm, I 
think for the ideal, I'm leaning toward the, like, it takes a firm hand. Yeah. Because that's so much the kind of guide star. You know, this is the ideal is like, what is the thing that guides their actions? What is the thing that guides their decisions? Mm -hmm. And that everything about him is that belief that what he's doing is sort of saving the people and saving Paris and uplifting them. Yeah, because I'm so much purer than the common vulgar weak licentious crowd. That's really good. But like from a GMing perspective, it's like that's not as specific as how does that translate? You know, how how is he like living his purity in his day to day life? His you know purity, big air quotes. (laughs) Um, So I think yeah, just as soon as you said the one about the firm hands to guide the weak minded, it's like oh man, (laughs) and that's really (laughs) easy for the GM to be like okay, I know who this guy is and I know how to role play these interactions. Mm -hmm. That he this belief that it takes a strong hand to guide the weak minded and blah blah. So I'm cool with that for our ideal. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go on record as saying, I mean, you've brought me on as a Frollo expert, so I have to like put it on the record. (laughs) I think I am guiltless. She ran. I pursued is brilliant as like the initial note in the character, because to me on a psychological level, that runs even deeper than the firm hand. Mm -hmm. I think he believes Mm -hmm. that it takes a firm hand because that makes him blameless for the things that he does. Mm-hmm. And if the situation were different, he might have a totally different approach. A to- he might do something totally different with his life to preserve his certainty that he is not to blame. But as you say, that's probably a deeper analysis of the character than is useful for the GM looking down at the sheet like, what does this guy do in this situation? So I, I agree with that pick. For me, though, I would be keeping in the back of my mind, like, whatever happens, Frollo, he will always contort his reasoning somehow to make it so that he is not to blame. 100%, yeah. And I think the big thing with that one is that you need the context for it to make sense, unfortunately. Mm, Yeah. That that is, oh, this is really I want to use it because it's it's, it's so perfect. But is that too specific? The I am guiltless, she ran, I pursued. Like, or, who ran? <laughs> yeah, who ran? Who pursued? What is the well, guilt? Oh, that's what's so brilliant about it. It's because he's saying it about Quasimodo's mother at the beginning, but it's a foreshadowing of Esmeralda. Mm. Because, and that's why, like, I mean, to oh, me, wow. the, the abstract torment is so much more powerful than the specific one because Esmeralda kind of could be anybody. This is a situation Frollo's going to end up in because he's one mm. of those people who's going to say they brought it on themselves. Uh, Mm -hmm. they, you know, they transgressed in some way. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. I feel like he's been in this situation with a lot of people and probably a lot of women. That's the vibe I get from Frollo. Yeah, we were talking about possible AU stuff. He clearly has a thing for travelers who could do an AU where he's Quasimodo's dad. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. what about, because I I didn't, I never made that connection with the foreshadowing Esmeralda. And in that case, the she can be a little broader for our domain. Because mm-hmm. that is kind of a big thing he's doing. What about that as a role-playing trait? Oh, interesting. Hmm. Because, once again, that could be the GM's, like, how do I role-play this character's, like, basic interactions with people? And I feel like... And that's... it's so black and white. Right, it's yeah. so... I am guiltless. Like, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Like, my, this is my airtight case. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great way to play lawful evil. A, mm-hmm. a lawful evil that is in self-denial is you do bad things, and then whenever you begin to question that maybe those are bad things I'm doing, you say, no, no, this isn't about evil. doesn't even matter what I wanted or did. Mm-hmm. The law is the law. They were in the wrong. Mm-hmm. This is their fault, not mine. It's very mm-hmm. clear. It just so happens every time, none of it is my fault. <laughs> the fact that, <laughs> Crazy. The fact that I chased a woman carrying her baby, and then she fell and died, and I tried to throw a baby in a well, obviously totally on her. Look at her lying there. 
guilty as sin. Mm-hmm. She ran. I, I pursued. pursued. <laughs> if you're all right with us just like preempting all the traits you painstakingly came up with, then uh... no, by all means. But I'm so curious what you have for Bond. Yeah, really. Because this is. <laughs> You know, the bond is the, what is the most important relationship the person has, and how what does it mean to them? And I'm so curious what you came up with for that. Yeah, this one, I even more than ideal, I feel like it is up to, you know, we're going to like choose a, an official kind of canonical one for the character, mm-hmm. but it I would change this based on what I plan to emphasize at the table. But the ones I got for this are the one I said before, the world is cruel, the world is wicked, it's I alone whom you can trust in this whole city which is a twofer because it gives you the mm-hmm. relationship to Quasimodo and the situation with respect to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one, if you really want to focus on Quasimodo, even this foul creature may yet prove one day to be of use to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one that goes specifically to Quasimodo, but also is a little bit of a cheat because Frollo is really in the business of like leveraging quote unquote sinners for his quote unquote righteous purposes. And using people in general. Right, yeah. The, his, his approach to a baby is... <laughs> <laughs> baby may someday be of use to me. And that even connects with his whole, I am righteous and what I am doing is righteous. Sort of the only thing that matters is my crusade. So thus, it's fine to think of people in terms of their utility to that crusade. Yeah. And it's fine to simultaneously blame someone for something and then also provoke them to it and it, mm-hmm. and use them to do it. I mean, he wants Esmeralda to sin with him, but it's like, it's okay because she's a sinner. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. The next one, if you want to emphasize the relationship with the travelers, their heathen ways inflame the people's lowest instincts and they must be stopped. That's really Mm. good. (laughs) If you wanted your player characters to become the focal point in a personal relationship with Frollo, uh, which sounds like tons of fun, (laughs) um, (laughs) you can give them a kind of a wild card. You will pay for this insolence on the theory that basically his deal with Esmeralda is about the fact that she stood up to him, that she Mm. defied him. And so if you wanted to play this in a way where when a PC walks up to Frollo and acts like a PC, they are going to become like his obsession. Uh, that would kind of give you a way to, to do that. That would be um, fun. Yeah. And then the last one, I'll find her if I have to burn down all of Paris. If you want to steer into like the obsession is with Esmeralda. And again, this one's a little bit of a twofer because it also gives you like this is the relationship to the city too. The city is expendable, mm-hmm. you know, while I'm sort of hunting my quarry. I like I'll find her if I have to burn down all of Paris because I feel like it's also a threefer that like he feels like she's the one responsible for his sin. And right. he's going to mm. root out this external thing that he thinks is responsible for his sin if he has to kill everybody in the world to do it. Especially kind of with our AU and our version the fact that we have that Alfinder have to burn all of Paris, like that's been the status quo for like a year. So <laughs> true. That's gonna be in our version, and in so much that the PCs are gonna encounter him, it's probably gonna be in the context of him doing horrible things to find Esmeralda. And part of it is to kind of consummate this demonic pact he made and hopefully have her. And part of it is that sort of guilt driving him to, well, if I can just destroy this external thing, I'll purify my soul. So I, I'm, I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. I'll say that I know we're going to talk a little later about different ways of using the character. If you were going to introduce him before, like if you were in the ideal scenario where you've got players who don't know who Claude Frollo is, <laughs> giving him the world is cruel, the world is wicked, etc. would be a great like bond to give him 
before the players know that he's the bad guy because yeah, then yeah. that like flips the bond on its head afterward because it's like oh we've come to this you know a horrid like scummy town and fortunately there's this one righteous judge who's going to help us out mm-hmm. and then once you get oh, to know man. him you realize like oh oh that's like he thinks everyone else is the problem and does not see that you know he is the source of this floss oh this is our this is, <laughs> this is really our jack skellington kind of moment of <laughs> just cornucopia of a veritable court of miracles of dear listeners welcome to our five-hour podcast yeah right <laughs> every mind claude frollo says explain why it's his flaw yeah i did not put very much into this because i there's one line and that's clearly the thing in my mind um uh-huh. even though it's extremely on the nose this burning desire is turning me to sin there it is because mm. it gives you the desire and it gives you the fact that he is aware of the conflict within himself. The, 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 that gives you his torment that he has this desire, he sees it as a sin, and he knows that it's pulling him in. And it also gives you, he blames temptation for his own corruption. I feel mm-hmm. like it has to be that. There are others. I actually think that, um, again, if you wanted to slow burn him a little more, uh, look at that disgusting display would be one where you could mm-hmm. like, he can never <laughs> yes, quite sir. Yes, sir. help but like stop and look. Yeah. He does have that sort of those leering eyes of the censor where he always wants to mm-hmm. really like get his hands on the thing that he has contempt for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lesson needs to be learned here could be another one that would be like maybe yeah, a useful yeah. flaw if you want to like pull him back from crushing player characters sometimes. Mm. That, you know, sometimes he, he might not go full force because he wants them to suffer like theoretically for their own good. And then possibly, uh, how dare you defy me if you wanted to play up the angry reaction to the defiance of his authority and the way that that tends to make him irrational. But mm-hmm. I, it's got to be a burning desire, right? I, I really like the, I'm so much purer than the vulgar, blah, blah, blah. The one that actually that I was thinking of, it's not my fault if in God's plan he made the devil so much stronger than a man that he's freaking blaming a god <laughs> for his sins. <laughs> like, what the heck, yeah. dude? <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to swear. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's that's the other that's reason I didn't try one. too hard is because basically everything I have for ideal and bond could also be flaw. And right. I think yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the thing about the, you know, the CVWL crowd, of course, um, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you, uh, you, you know, uh, of my virtue, I am justly proud. <laughs> I mean, what a line. What a line. <laughs> Of yeah. my virtue, I am justly proud. You know who this guy is. Just bam, bam, bam. Every word is perfect. <laughs> and it does depend to, like, talking about context, it depends on how well you know the character because some of those lines, I mean, only the fact that they're a flaw would betray out of context that they are flaws because it's Frollo talking mm. himself up. And it's only when you realize, like, who he is that you see that this represents such a deep flaw in him. But, yeah, I don't know. I... To me, it's the burning desire, but I am open to basically any of Frollo's lines. <laughs> As if you know how, if you know how he says them, all you have to do is see them on the sheet, and you're like, "Oh yeah, this jerk." <laughs> I'm thinking about the utility for the GM, mm-hmm. and it's not just the touch of psychology. We just, as much as we want to be Frollo cast, where we talk about Judge of God Frollo's complex psychology. Like, what's the GM doing with this? Mm-hmm. And the big thing, I think it has to have some element of him losing control. Mm. Because that's going to be the big, where the character sheet is going to inform the GM role-playing Frollo vis-a-vis the flaw. That it's not just, yes, he has this internal flaw that might come out in, like, dialogue, but this whole, no, this is the thing that 
will drive him to irrationality, will drive him to make mistakes. The PCs can trigger his conscience, can like make his hair get all disheveled. <laughs> I think that is actually part of why this burning desire is turning me to sin is good is because it specifically points out the possibility of him violating his own standards, which mm. is like yeah, the yeah. key mm-hmm. thing. You know, anything that expresses like his self-righteousness, his pride, all that stuff, that is like, you know, that's his everyday sin. Um, mm-hmm. But this sort of like this burning desire is turning me to sin that telegraphs to the I think the players in the GM like this is a guy who if he wants it bad enough, he's gonna like get off his high horse enough to like do something nefarious that he knows is bad, really. <laughs> this is the scene he brings up for special occasions. Or even just this yeah. is if you're role playing this scene with him, this is kind of you make your wisdom insight checks and this is how the bar can get under his skin. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm cool with this burning cool. desire Sounds turning good. to sin. So we've got to, like, pull ourselves out of the infinite hall of mirrors that is... Cheaper's creeper. Judge Paul Frollo's psychology. (laughs) And instead get into the exterior house of mirrors that is Notre Dame, our domain, which is the reflection of his psychology, (laughs) and not just sitting here and dissecting his jerk. humanities majors. (laughs) In our section we like to call The Land. The land. As mentioned, the people of Notre Dame believe themselves to be part of a larger nation from which they were cut off. However, once one gets past a few miles of farmland surrounding the city, there is only the mist. The people are certain that the mist will lift eventually, when the war is ended, or when all raise their voices in prayer simultaneously at the cathedral, or when the last traveler is executed or banished. And because of Ezra's link to the mists, some of these stories have taken on a nearly apocalyptic bent. As for the people of Notre Dame, well, my patron accuses me of allowing my emotions to rule me, not realizing that certain personalities can try the coolest temper, but he should visit this land if he truly desires to see a people controlled by their passions. They can transform from a peaceful assembly to a bloodthirsty mob at a moment's notice, and the guards' heavy-handed attempts to control the violence only exacerbate it. Some say that things were better before Frollo cancelled the annual Feast of Fools, which provided the people with a needed pressure valve as they mocked the prig and shocked the priest. Others argue that if the city is already in chaos, reinstating a day of misrule will only make it worse. Naturally, one's opinion on this correlates with one's opinion on Frollo. The guards, meanwhile, have responded to this disorder with an increase in brutality, particularly against the travelers. Frollo has declared that travelers are to be arrested on sight, and whether or not they have committed any crimes, the Viceroy always finds something with which to charge them. Given that their very existence is illegal, even the most upright of travelers have been forced to ally themselves with the city's criminal element in order to survive. The resultant group, called the Court of Miracles, is everything from a network of travelers to a thieves and assassins guild to the locus of organized resistance. A lucky stroke for Frollo, who is all the more able to paint murderers, travelers, and dissidents as one and the same. So let's talk a bit about how we are seeing this world that Claude Frollo, who we spent such a long time discussing, (laughs) interacts with. Because as much as we might enjoy just talking about this guy sitting in a chair, to gamify him, he needs to be in a space, in an environment to interact with. So we have what we're calling Cite de Notre Dame, or Notre Dame for short. We once again apologize for mangling our French pronunciations. Mm -hmm. We promise when there's German pronunciations, we'll do better. (laughs) She'll do better. (laughs) 
So we are imagining that before this was a domain, that it was the capital of a nation. And like we said, we know from Esmeralda's comment, the Quasimodo, that there is a king. But we don't ever see any kind of like royal presence. But we also know there was this thing, the wars, because Phoebus comes back and he's upset. He says, oh, I was brought back from the wars to deal with like fortune tellers and pickpockets. So we are imagining that when Frollo commits his act of ultimate darkness, the mist kind of comes around the city and also kind of the surrounding farmland. Yeah, because we do see the miller's house uh, burning. That's part of his domain. And the king was away. The king was dealing with something with the war at the time. And part of what gives Frollo all this power to abuse in the course of the movie is that he is the viceroy. That while the king is away, he basically acts as the king. Because we do never see anything but complete legal power from Frollo. We never see any kind of objection any kind of superior, any kind of legal code that limits his power. Mm-hmm. And so, this being Ravenloft, you have the weird mind whammy stuff. So, <laughs> you know, they used to be part of a country, and now they're kind of a city and some farms and a lot of mist. But they assume it's something to do with the wars. That if you asked any of them, well, what about the other provinces? What about the king? What about the border, the rest of the nation? But they would give you some, like, mumbly excuse about the wars and then change the subject. <laughs> I actually have a question about this. So the mm-hmm. the secular position of authority is viceroy. In this version, is Frollo an actual like religious figure within the hierarchy of the church? I know we're about to get to that stuff, but like, is he is that a dual thing or is he purely a civic official? I'm assuming civic official because that's kind of what we see in the movie that they make him the judge and he's very much the state official. But it could be, you know, that's not the case in the original book or in, in literally any of the other interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> so I am very much open for having him also have this sort of ecclesial religious position of authority as well. Darn, I'd have to look up specific positions of the hierarchy of the Church of Ezra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really would like him having some position of at least trust and, and probably authority in the Church of Ezra because I almost feel as though he's a judge in name only in the Disney movie. Like it's kind of only to avoid the offense mm-hmm. of, of him being a religious official who is so quite so corrupt because his story is just so much better if he actually has mm-hmm. this kind of religious mm-hmm. vocation that he is like not only corrupt and holding it, but he is increasingly leveraging to serve that corruption. That is a, it's a powerful story that way. And it even makes sense with that he's not only prosecuting some of the civil stuff, like maybe, you know, thievery, but that he is so much the, like, the vice squad, the morality Mm -hmm. police, that there clearly is not the sort of separation of kind of law and morality. And so much of what he's using, the power of the state to enforce, is a specific moral code and specific moral ideal. All right, so I am looking at the Church of Ezra hierarchy. Lie, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and we would be looking at him being either an anchorite, which is kind of the general term for members of Ezra's clergy, or one of the specific ranks is the warden, which Ooh. is a priest who serves at a temple or wanders through the mist spreading Ezra's word, aka a PC. Um, <laughs> if we get any higher than that, then we start getting into them actually being like the pastor or monsignor of a church or something like that. And that's Notre Dame. He's not in charge of Notre Dame. That's the archdeacon's job. So Mm -hmm. he would be either an anchorite or a warden, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right, too, because that way he's not, like, outranking the archdeacon or anything like that. But he also has that civic authority so that there is there's potential for a little conflict. And it, it does raise what is, to me, an interesting question about this area, which is, like, 
as the player characters try to acclimate, trying to figure out kind of who are the good guys. And on top of that, if we happen to be burdened with a lawful alignment, who are we supposed to be following? You know, <laughs> who is supposed to be in charge, mm -hmm. independent of our opinion of how they're doing? Man alive, Warden is just a great title yeah, for yeah. Prolo. Like, I could not have asked like, for a better title. For <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, yeah, description, what it is, whatever. Like that, that term mm -hmm. and that concept of a warden, of someone who's sort of a protector, who guards borders... There's always the impression of the use of force, then you have a protector through force of arms. That would be, like, absolutely part of his self-image would be a warden. He is a warden of mm -hmm. the people, a warden of the city, no matter how much the reality might play out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only downside to that would be that if he were part of the church hierarchy, then he would be answering directly to the archdeacon. So maybe there would be something with if he were a warden and it worked like the idea of rather than serving at the temple, kind of being one of the more PC-ish wardens, that yeah, yeah. maybe he would be under the jurisdiction of one of the other torrets. They're the, they're the ones who are in charge okay. of the, the churches. Well, the other torrets who's outside of right. City de Notre Dame and they can't reach them because the mm -hmm. war. Oh, no. That's the so. nice thing about like being in a domain that's formed where your boss is somewhere else mm -hmm. <laughs> is you technically have a boss, but basically like cosmically you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that actually seems like a very uh, rich situation to me to have him be, you know, theoretically under someone who is distant and therefore a lot of this being isolated would come down to like how much actual power do they have and how much does Ezra seem to be on his side, which is something that is going to be wildly misleading mm -hmm. given, you know, that he is the Dark Lord. Mm -hmm. And that even ties into kind of what we're doing with the civil authority, with the idea that he's technically just the viceroy, like technically the, all his authority comes from the king and the king could overrule any of this and everyone can like, you totally have a couple of people that are like writing down all their grievances mm -hmm. to give to the king when the king comes back from the wars. But functionally, effectively, he has unlimited power. And speaking of wardens and members of the Church of Ezra, <laughs> Chris, you had an idea, something you wanted to do with Phoebus. Remember in this, our timeline, we are imagining Phoebus didn't have that like make or break moment at the Miller's house. So he still is kind of what he is in sort of the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie, sort of very reluctantly the captain of the guard, but he is obeying Frollo. So what do you want to do with that? I had a thought that it would be interesting to do Phoebus as a paladin or something very like a paladin. But I think if you can get away with, you know, one of your presumably very few paladins that you want to intersperse in your, your Ravenloft campaign, <laughs> this would be the perfect Ravenloft way to use a paladin NPC because you could set up a situation where he feels bound because of his, his piety to continue to serve Frollo as best he can. And it might put him in an untenable position where he actually has to violate his code in order to defy Frollo, which means it could put the player characters in the position of trying to make a paladin fall by making them do the right thing, hmm. turning him against the legitimate authority of the church because that authority is so corrupt. I think that would be really fun. And if you, you know, we'll get to how you get people here, but if you were going to do kind of a slow burn with this where we visit this area first, then come back later for the main plot... It would really be great to come here with Phoebus when he first joins up with Frollo, if you have other sort of servants of Ezra in the player group, so that you then have this person that they know is a good person when they come back serving Frollo to really heighten the drama of like the position this puts him in, that like this is an unthinkable kind of defiance for a paladin. And you know he's a good guy. It's not that he's secretly evil or an anti-paladin or something. It's just Frollo has turned this into an impossible situation for him. I think there's really something there. 
Oh, yeah, that's delicious. <laughs> yeah. We took a while to figure out exactly what we wanted the timeline to be. But we knew pretty much from the beginning we wanted it to be that Phoebus was still working for Frollo. Like, I'm not the hugest Phoebus fan in the world, but I do really like those, like, earlier scenes where Frollo is giving him commands and he's obeying the commands. He never, like, openly defies him. But he's trying to sort of undermine him and minimize the harm of those commands and do as much good as he can within the kind of rule set. So there's a scene where Frollo orders them to arrest Esmeralda, and I think it's at the festival, Mm -hmm. and he says, you know, I want her alive. And Phoebus says, you hurt her, men. Don't hurt her. Like, that's sort of taking that There's a big difference between alive and unharmed. Between I want her alive and you hurt him, men. Don't hurt her. Mm -hmm. So that is a great character, and that's a great NPC. Mm -hmm. Or even when they're fighting in the church and he's like, say sanctuary. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, sir. She claims sanctuary. Yeah. And, you know, I know we're getting right into this. The rest of the population of the city, we've talked about how this is such an externalization of sin. And that works better if the people really do have some faults. They're not these sort of like maligned innocents. You know, they're not a plague on the city either, Mm -hmm. but they're also not perfect. It really is great to put a paladin into that situation under the authority of someone who is a lawful non-good because it's easy for a, a paladin in that situation to start getting used as sort of an executioner or a scourge by someone who does not have people's best interest in mind. And it's hard when you are brought into a situation where it's like, here's this person, they've committed this crime, this is the punishment on the books. And you know there's more to it than that. If, mm-hmm. if it were you, you would handle it more mercifully. You would be looking at the greater good. But that is the law. Mm-hmm. And this is your boss. So, like, they did it. That That is a very challenging situation to put the paladin into. And I think it would really help you hit these themes, even if you don't have a character like that in the group. You could get to it through Phoebus. Yeah, I think the most delicious thing is to have this be a PC. Uh-huh. But I think it would also yeah, be a very fruitful, rewarding thing to have it be this NPC that the PCs have the potential to flip because yeah, yeah. PCs love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We've mentioned this a couple of times, a couple of episodes, I think starting with Encanto, that there are certain types of NPCs that PCs love to interact with and love to have as in the story. And in my experience, one of those types is the good person sort of trapped in this bad system. Mm -hmm. And if they get to be the ones that flip them, if they get to be the ones that convince them to stop participating in this, to sort of realize that even as much as they're doing, it's an unacceptable moral compromise and they need to just sort of leave the system entirely, that is a very enjoyable experience for quite a lot of PCs. (laughs) And you mentioned a PC that's a cleric of Ezra, like a cleric or paladin, or even like a worshiper of Ezra. And I think this would be an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this whole story is going to be punching them right in the feelings mm-hmm. if they're like really kind of role playing that faith and that religious identity. Like a cleric of Ezra coming into this, this is going to be like almost their worst nightmare. Yeah. But then this getting Phoebus, who's, they're going to have so much sympathy for Phoebus, getting Phoebus to flip, getting Phoebus to kind of realize that this is not the way to serve Ezra. This is not Ezra's will, that that's going to be so satisfying. And that's going to be the big win they get. Because Frollo does have a little bit of that Dark Lord plot armor, but like this is a win you could do. This Mm -hmm. doesn't affect his torment or his curse or anything like that. Yeah. And you know, I'll throw in here, if you have a player like me who is 
attracted to tragic stories as well. I think there could be something here in Phoebus and potentially a player character, Worshipper of Ezra, kind of as Hector, as like Mm. at the end when the cathedral is under siege by all these very put upon people who have very legitimate grievances, feeling like we're on the wrong side of this one, but this is my side. So like, let's go out there and fight this battle because that's our role in this. Mm -hmm. Even as we know this is Frollo's fault. This is our church's fault, not Mm -hmm. these people's fault. Yeah. Uh, that'd be epic. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah that'd can, be something. You can either have a great redemption story or a great damnation story. It works out fantastically. And yeah, th- and that is something that's totally going to be up to the PCs. Mm-hmm. This is not part of the essential part of the setting. Mm-hmm. It's not essential part of the torment. It's totally going to be how the PCs play it. How mm-hmm. well they do, what choices they make, what conversations they have, what persuasion roles they have. Yeah. Like, And that's great that you can really have this big meaningful setting element that actually can be completely up to the PCs. Mm-hmm. And speaking of NPCs who the PCs are going to want to flip, mm-hmm. the, let, let's talk about the hunchback elephant in the room. Yes, the titular um, <laughs> hunchback of the room. Quasimodo, we're kind of in a, a similar position with him, where he's in this position where he is still serving Frollo, he is still just completely cowed by Frollo, but we know from what happens to him in the movie that he can be flipped mm-hmm. around, he can turn on Frollo. And that's a thing that, again, your feces are going to find really rewarding. With Quasimodo putting on the Ravenloft Grognard head, as <laughs> I always do, there was a thing in the older material, bingo, where since there weren't orcs in Ravenloft, rather than having half-orcs as a species option, they had Caliban's. And the idea with Caliban's was that you had the stats of a half-orc, but you were just like a human who was twisted in the womb and whatnot. That that sure does sound like Quasimodo. Yeah, right. He's human, but he has the stats of a half-orc. Wasn't there a Hunchback of Notre Dame-inspired Ravenloft novel? There was, but was I haven't Cal- read it. I yeah. Think, but I, I bet you if we looked that up, it would have him be that it was the Caliban bell ringer of the cathedral of blah, 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 blah. It, yeah, it, was, it was Tower of Doom. I haven't read Tower of Doom, but <laughs> You yeah. look so ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> Stop I the am, recording. I am. We have to pause while I go read Tower of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> we'll convene in a day or two. But no, I, I would bet you, you know, dollars to francs to croissants that, <laughs> that, that in Tower of Doom, the Quasimodo analog is a Caliban. Similarly to Phoebus, we knew we wanted to have the same situation where we hasn't had the big betrayal by Frollo yet. So Quasimodo still is in that, once again, sort of like half an hour right before Frollo <laughs> burns the Millers. He's helped Esmeralda escape. He's had that act of defiance. Esmeralda's been like, maybe Frollo's wrong about things. And Quasimodo's like, ah, my brain. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking psychic damage. I'm I'm literally taking psychic damage every word you say. And even for PCs that aren't necessarily as sympathetic to Phoebus, every PC group is going to bond a Quasimodo, Mm -hmm. is going to adopt Quasimodo, and is going to want to convince him, and is going to have much, much more sympathy for his continued loyalty to Frollo and is going to cheer and high five when they get in and be like, no, you're the one who's who's evil and cruel and you told me the world was bad, but you're bad kind of moment. Our friend Haylight, who designed our logo, they ran a Hunchback-inspired Ravenloft one-shot mm-hmm. and Quasimodo was a Frollo's henchman and I think they were going a little bit more with the way that he is in the book mm-hmm. where he's kind of like acting as a thug for Frollo and the PCs you know, think at first that he's a villain and then discover what he's actually like. And they were so happy that the PCs didn't kill Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And this is a nice thing you can get a classic, like, sympathetic Frankenstein-y type monster mm-hmm. where he's very tough, he's very strong, he has a little bit of impulse control issues. <laughs> like, this might be a fight, and it's a fight where the PCs can take some damage, but a fight where they're, like, desperately trying not mm-hmm. to hurt mm-hmm. the person, kind of lashing out at them. Like, a lot of turns. Of, like, I use my turn to make a persuasion check. Like, I don't want to hurt this person, but <laughs> he's punching me like a truck. Yeah, you know, I think there's a temptation to try to use a character like that as a reveal. And in this case, it would be so much more effective, and it helps you that this is such a well-known story. It's an opportunity to use Quasimodo as a symbol of what Frollo is doing with the whole city. Mm. So that that yeah, way it gives yeah. you like a tactically engaging, you know, because Frollo is like this fraud of a father figure to Quasimodo. And he's also, though, supposedly a worshiper of Ezra. He's the viceroy of this absent king. Like he's he's not any of our real dads. <laughs> I, I think that seeing the position that this puts Quasimodo in and how he's like just trying to help his dad. He's just trying to do what he's been told is right. And you have to somehow disabuse him of that, though, because his corruption is making him destructive. That would get player characters because it's happening sort of like on a very small scale, practical level in combat to engage with the idea of like, oh, yeah, we hate this guy. This guy, Frollo, <laughs> he is doing things to good people that are turning them into agents of evil. And he's on his high horse about it. I think that very succinctly expresses why Frollo is so hateable. And then you can see it all around you once you see it in Quasimodo. That's really cool, yeah. Right. And it would even make them more sympathetic, maybe, to some of the mm, other people mm-hmm. that are kind of under this influence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to more make them see, like, no, Frollo sort of, yeah, this bad stuff is happening, but a lot of it is this sort of root of evil that's corrupting everything, which is Frollo. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned that the Feast of Fools and the idea that Frollo has canceled it, because of course he would. If you, if you, <laughs> if you gave Frollo his druthers, mm-hmm. that would be, like, point two on his to-do list after kill all travelers and Esmeralda question mark. And that's, we keep coming back to that because we're thinking that as a plot element we'll talk a bit more about in the adventure stuff. But basically, like, we've had about a year go by, we've maybe had one missed Feast of Fools, maybe not, but that this is something that's causing the people to start turning on Frollo. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have as much of those, like, big people turning against Frollo, Phoebus giving a speech in the square kind of moments. But that the people, you know, this has always been sort of their right to have this day of disorder and this day of chaos and this festival. And so you have this kind of growing resentment. And even if you want kind of a specific inciting incident to be like when the PCs arrive, tensions are super high. It could be that like, yeah, the Feast of Fools is supposed to be in a couple of days and everybody's mad that they are not allowed to celebrate it. Yeah, I love this. I love this as a way to frame it, especially because we're changing so much and This puts us right back in that moment, I think, of the people feeling like they're kind of coming to a boil, and very rightfully so. It's so perfect for Frollo because it's like, of course, as you say, it's in his character not to want to do this festival, but it's because he does not see the importance of having his authority punctured ever, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of having his clay feet exposed ever, which is so crucial to the functioning of his authority, like for it to really work. People would have to see that he is a human who can make mistakes, and he knows that. And the failure to do that, you can see why people would be upset about it and would feel like, you know, it's our right to act up a little bit. If you're not going to show any humility, then, you know, it becomes incumbent upon us to, like, just have some fun and, like, have a party without you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's like in elementary school when the kids mm-hmm. misbehave and the teachers deny them recess. That's just going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You can't take away the things that people need in response to their misbehavior because it forces their backs against the wall. So in that's our, our overall picture of where the city is. And then in the city, we have kind of three specific locations. And this is like the movie where other than like the Miller's house, like <laughs> most of the movie is sort of in like an island in Paris. And first off is the cathedral. And we've talked about a couple of times, we've used the word Ezra, if you're familiar with Ravenloft, Ezra is the closest analog to Catholicism in traditional Ravenloft that's introduced in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft into 5e. Rachel is shaking with joy. I am. I'm doing my little dance. she's all ready to, to <laughs> Ravenloft all over the place. So, obviously, our Notre Dame Cathedral, Notre Dame means Our Lady, so it's even perfect for mm-hmm. sort of a, a mm-hmm. goddess with a lot of Catholic imagery like Ezra. Rachel, tell us about Ezra before you explode. I have been waiting my entire life for this moment. <laughs> have you accepted Ezra into your hearts, dear <laughs> listeners? So, Ezra is... In the new material is very vague, but she was very detailed in the older material in a way that really works beautifully for what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Because number one, there was the fact that one of her titles was Our Lady of the Mists, Mm -hmm. aka Notre Dame de... Sorry, French speakers, we we looked it up and I don't remember. But whatever it is, it would translate into... Notre Dame de French word for Notre Dame de something. And also that she is a lawful neutral goddess. So you have that idea of law, but that idea that because she's neutral, you could either have lawful good worshippers like the Archdeacon or lawful evil worshippers like Frollo, Mm -hmm. who can still convince themselves that they're doing her will. So the cathedral, I'm going to get into way more detail about the Church of Ezra later. I apologize to those of you whose eyes are already glazing over, but you knew what <laughs> you were this doing. Was when you about clicked- the cartoon movie, <laughs> you knew what you were doing when you clicked on this podcast. <laughs> so we're imagining that the cathedral is lawful neutral. There are different sects of Ezra for various lawful alignments, and that the cathedral is for the lawful neutral sect. So that is why it can encompass both Frollo and the Archdeacon. And why, again, since it's lawful neutral, the laws do have to be obeyed. That the law of sanctuary is important, that Frollo cannot violate the law of sanctuary. And that since you have this lawful good archdeacon, then he is going to be setting this good side to it, this merciful side to it, having this sense of sanctuary there. We're imagining that Quasimodo is still in the church. He's still there up in the bell tower. And you know, he knows Esmeralda's out there somewhere and he keeps wanting to go and look for her, but he just he can't quite summon the wherewithal to do so. Oh, I do have a question. Yes. Okay. Your greatest challenge. <laughs> so you're an expert on Ezra. You're an expert on this movie. Uh, you are a Catholic. Can you give me, off the top of your head, like a real compelling idea for how we adapt these gargoyles? Because they're... <laughs> They're a huge part of the movie, and I'm sh- I probably oh, yeah. I missed boy howdy are like, they the really deep thematic resonance that these gargoyles must have. So can you? <laughs> how do I do it? All right, give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, the obvious is if they're all in Quasimodo's head. Well, I mean, they yeah, are but the that's a cop just out. sort of manifestation of his loneliness, and he is just talking to himself in the bell tower. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> Rachel's on the case. So in Van Richten's Guide to the Created. <laughs> Starts with <laughs> citation. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Within Ra- 
Ravenloft, you don't actually have to have any kind of feat or anything like that to create a golem. You just have to have an extreme driving desire to create Mm -hmm. this companion for yourself. So if Quasimodo is so lonely Mm. that he is able to kind of his, his loneliness reaches out to the dark powers and the dark powers hear him and respond and imbue (laughs) these gargoyles. The most annoying (laughs) tone breaking personalities possible. He got what he wanted, which was companionship. (laughs) He lost what he had, which was an interesting adult nuance. Um, Disney's dark masterpiece of the 90s, of the Renaissance. (laughs) So these gargoyles are golems, constructs created by Quasimodo's dark desire, but they can never fully give him what he wants, which is good characters to talk to, (laughs) because they're just mockeries from the dark powers. In the sort of symbolism and in the internal logic of the movies, I think it would be something more with, like, the gargoyles are sort of animated, maybe even by, like, Ezra or by, like, the faith of the Mm -hmm. cathedral as these sort of guardians and protectors. Because Mm -hmm. in the movie, they're supposed to be sort of, like, his best self. Yeah. His conscience and his sort of defiance of Frollo and his desire to go on the outside, his hope of a better life. That they're sort of his best self. So you could even say that there is this, this is holy place, whether it's literally this divine presence or whether it's just sort of the positive psychic energy of the faith that, and Quasimodo is this like deeply good person Mm -hmm. that there's sort of a resonance there and that he maybe was talking to the gargoyles and they sort of came to life. They came to life one day when there's some magic in that old silk hat they found. And so they're kind of a very limited life because their sort of purpose is to guide him. But maybe even some kind of like very, very low level kind of celestial like mm. being kind of like the equivalent, whatever the celestial equivalent of like a quasit or an imp is. Mm-hmm. Sort of like CL1 kind of a good aligned celestial being Mm -hmm. that they're like that would be sort of the in universe beyond hallucinations. And this is why they can throw things at people and hit them and affect the outside world. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I really like when you talk about them being connected to something celestial or to Ezra, it makes me think I would love to use Rachel's idea there and then have it be sort of the idea of like, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Mm-hmm. That like, this is a, a cruel joke of the dark powers that this <laughs> is like a soul in a holy place reaching out for something like divine connection, but he can't understand it. And so they've created a facsimile that shuts off in Frollo's presence. So it can never quite comfort him, mm-hmm. but it does sort of tell on Frollo when he's not around. The typical, like, pot stirring of the dark powers, it makes sense to me that they would create this, like, okay, well, you can't have a god because you've been hidden from that, but you can have this, like, on again, off again version of your best self that Frollo is trying to keep from you just to, like, give you false hope and to puncture his plan to keep you from seeing what he is, just just to see what happens, you know? That's great. I was just thinking as you were saying that, that like because in Ravenloft, it's ultimately all coming from the Dark Power, so as much as I love Tom's idea, right. I think it's a little too wholesome for Ravenloft. Right, like, this is sort of the in the logic of the movie. I'm right. Oh, no, no, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. But like because the Dark Powers are tormenting Frollo, yes. they're going to be bucking up Quasimodo. Yes. So it's going to look like something good, even though it's 
risk from them. And you know, maybe if you want to have it be like a more cheerful Ravenloft, there is a measure. No, you you you, you square, the, square circle. the circle. <laughs> you like <laughs> because the dark powers. I think we really hit a breakthrough. With their goal is torment, mm-hmm. and not even necessarily evil. But torment. Mm-hmm. And so Quasimodo under Frollo's thumb doesn't please them. Quasimodo rebelling against Frollo pleases but just them. just enough. Yeah, just enough. Like pushing back against Frollo pleases them. And sort of if as a necessary evil consequence of that, Quasimodo is encouraged to be his true self. That's like, oh, well, you know. Yeah, it's a wonderful like mockery of his situation because it's like, if you would let your adopted son know about real God, then this wouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. But you didn't. You tried to squash him as sort of like a person, and you denied him his his birthright to have like a divine connection. And so he gets this instead, which is this parody of it that will never really help him, but it, it may hurt you. So after that really longer than expected discussion of the gargoyles, <laughs> and speaking of Frollo. I'm so glad that we finished talking about Frollo in the last segment. I feel like now we're yeah, really we're on target to, like, to finish on. this up. <laughs> Yeah. But speaking of Frollo, back to Frollo. Back to Frollo. We have our second major location. We only see a little bit of it, but so kind of psychically important in the space in the movie and that we are creating, and that's the Palace of Justice. The, I can't believe this is the actual name and not like a supervillain thing, Palace of Justice. <laughs> that this is Frollo's home. This is the barracks for the guards we're imagining. So this is also where you could like encounter Phoebus. If you wanted some little like after hours time with Phoebus, this would be where you would go. There are dungeons. We see there are people being tortured. And there are the courts where Frollo is presumably like issuing judgment. This is the symbolic center of law and center of order in this domain and in this sort of city, even before it became a domain, this was the symbolic. Now it's kind of literally the center of law and order, but that it has been corrupted. You know, we see it as this very like looming, ominous, spiky turreted Mm -hmm. place. This is very much the kind of externalization of Frollo. We've talked a couple of times about that. A lot of these classic Gothic locations is the externalization of the Gothic villain. And this is sort of, when you go here, you're going into Frollo's world. We also have his demon fireplace. We say this is the place even more so in our domain than it was in the movie, because this is the place where he sold his soul. This is like the Castle Ravenloft. This is sort of the keystone of the domain. This is where... All the sort of coming into Ravenloft radiated out in a circle from the Palace of Justice. It's the sort of metaphysical center of the dark, evil, corrupt, hierarchical aspect of this domain. Yeah. And and it's such a great opportunity to bring all that stuff in in a way that's um in a way that's gameable, in a way that's actionable for player characters, because so little of it's defined. Like we know the locations, but we don't have a really like a big scene here other than Hellfire, which is just such a like a tableau. It's not like a, you know, a big action scene that Quasimodo's swinging around or anything. So I think you have an opportunity to do a big social or combat or both mm-hmm. set piece here in turning this into a sort of a D&D adventure that gives you something that is recognizable and thematic, but also this is like your meat and potatoes for your D&D game right. of okay, this is a structure that you could walk around in and like fight guards and there's like the fireplace and there's like an effect on the fireplace and all that stuff. I would be keen to find a way to use that Mm -hmm. um, to make this into its most gameable version. Right, there's literally a dungeon 
and you can dive it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the, the idea is there's sores, there's catacombs, there's tunnels. You can do this sort of dungeon dive through the literal dungeons of the Palace of Justice. <laughs> and then we have our third major location from the movie and kind of our, in our imagining, this is sort of the opposite, the kind of yin to the yang, the mirror image of the Palace of Justice, and that's the Court of Miracles. And that is the center of chaos, the center of freedom, and the center of law-breaking and criminality in the city. And it's hidden in the catacombs, speaking of awesome dungeons. Oh my god! I mean, that's so great when they're going in, and there's skeletons, and there's traps, and there's like, that's going to be a fantastic session right there. Just Paris getting, catacombs are a real-life dungeon. They're a real-life life. D&D <laughs> set, yeah. Do some Google image searching, get some pictures, have mm-hmm, a lot of skeletons, mm-hmm. some traps. It's it's a real-life dungeon. Yeah. And we're imagining this is obviously the kind of the center of the Thieves' Guild. This is the center of the black market. This would be like any of your rogue characters. Any character with Thieves' Cant can sort of finally feel home in this horrible city. This is <laughs> the place for the lawbreakers, the place for the rebels, and that it also has become this big refuge for the travelers that they're hiding in the catacombs. A lot of them have their home in the Court of Miracles because this is a place where they can be free. That, you know, yes, the sort of travelers and the Thieves' Guild exist side by side because they can all agree that the laws are bad. And they're all sort of agents of law-breaking, agents of chaos, agents of freedom. They're all people whose lives push against the general lawful, ordered, controlled nature of this domain. Yeah, because one of the things that we're really imagining for the Court of Miracles is that it being the home of chaos, you have chaotic good people like Esmeralda who are extremely good going side by side with you could put in some really loathsome chaotic evil Mm -hmm. people here also, but they're coexisting at the moment because they agree that freedom is better than Frollo, even if it comes at the expense of whatever the chaotic evil people are doing. And this is kind of one of the very few places, maybe the only real place in the city that's sort of free from his influence Mm -hmm. and free from his control. So everybody who pushes against that control sort of found their way here. Yeah, that, I think that this location is so important. It's going to be perfect for player characters to come and like figure out their relationship with and on both sides. I mean, this is an obvious playground for your more chaotic, mm-hmm. especially like your more thief type player characters. But also it's a great challenge for your more lawful player characters who may feel that like there's a conflict going on in this domain and this is the other side relative to me. But if I am good, then I I may have torn allegiances because I see that these are people who are like live and let live to the extent that things are being allowed to happen here that I can't accept. Mm -hmm. But I, I can't enforce my will on this. I can't kind of, I can't hold myself above it because again, of the situation that's being created here, everyone is being pushed here who doesn't knuckle under to this lawful evil regime. And so I'm a criminal the same as these other people who I feel very uncomfortable (laughs) being on the same side as. And in fact, I think since we are like the traveler idea is sort of more or less an empty symbol or metaphor of oppressed people, it would be great to throw in some characters here who for more concrete reasons Frollo disapproves Mm. of to really show the connection of like, if you have any kind of background, if you have any kind of magical practice, if you have any kind of orientation that Frollo disapproves of, you're going to find yourself at the Court of Miracles, shoulder to shoulder with people who maybe are dangerous and you wish you didn't have to hang out with. But in Frollo's mind, you're all the same Mm. and he's the Viceroy. Mm -hmm. So 
you're all the same. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's, that's really good. Yeah, definitely a thing you'd have to session zero, but it has mm-hmm. a lot of potential for some mm-hmm. really interesting stuff, yeah. So, Rachel, you reread Hunchback of Notre Dame I did. <laughs> so tell us about I made the, that noble sacrifice. the cool Court of Miracles. <laughs> I, I mostly do not recommend reading Hunchback of Notre Dame because it's very long and a miserableist slog. Mm-hmm. Victor Hugo wants to make you sad, and he just Boy, like... Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what melodrama he has to do along the way. But the one thing that I really liked was there's a bit that the Phoebus in the movie is kind of an amalgam of two different characters because the Phoebus who's the soldier and the character who's in love with Esmeralda are two different people. And in the book, the character who's in love with Esmeralda, he follows her down to the Court of Miracles and... Clopin says, oh, well, you know, you've, you've discovered us now, and we can never let anyone who's found us leave alive, so we're going to have to kill you. And the only way that you can leave is if you're a member of the Court of Miracles. Yes. But if you're going to join us, then you have to prove that you're worthy of being a member of the Court of Miracles. So you have to pass this test of, like, agility and thief <laughs> skills and... GMs, you are salivating like right now. <laughs> Victor Hugo was writing a Dungeons and Dragons module. Like, yes. You go to the Thieves Guild, and they're like, well, we can't let you leave alive unless you join, but you have to prove you're... Like, PCs are going to be like, yes, go. What do we do? What do I have to do? I am so in. I get a little pin if I, like, graduate. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that. And especially as, like... Because, you know, we're talking about how some things here are really set in stone and then other things you can kind of do whatever you want with. I like the idea of this as like an optional sort of allegiance, an optional side quest that really fills out. Like if you're not going to take this on in a way where you're going to try to sort of like stick to your guns and stay pure and like fight the people in the Court of Miracles at the same time that you're fighting Frollo, then this fills it out with like, you know, initiation stuff mm-hmm. and a deepened connection to like the forces of chaos here. So yeah, it's, that's perfect. It's so good. There's even a thing where, because he ends up failing the test, but you can also survive the court of miracles. If you marry a member of the court of ah. miracles, which is, you know, he ends up having this sham wedding to mm. Esmeralda. So you could, if you have, if this is the kind of thing that your PCs would be up for, which you know, what's, as a GM, I'm salivating over it right, right now. Yeah. But if one of your PCs is like the rogue who does this and the paladin is like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Then the rogue and the paladin can have their sham wedding. Yes. And so now they're forced to pretend they're married. <laughs> but there's only one bed. Oh, no. <laughs> their airplane was canceled because of snow. <laughs> or like if you have a PC that maybe watched this movie when they were like 12 and it made a real impression on them and they are kind of interested in Esmeralda and sort of interested in romancing Esmeralda, mm-hmm. this would be a really cool way to like yeah. move that story along and have <laughs> like some fun, cute, flirty interactions, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And they're high-fiving mm-hmm. a 12-year-old self. Yeah. <laughs> if we knew anybody like that, that, that would definitely be the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> So we've got, as we said, the Palace of Justice, the Court of Miracles are our order and chaos. There are kind of twin pillars, and we're even like, you sort of have them, and then Notre Dame's in the middle. Like, that's our sort of balance point of justice and mercy. And the kind of battle over Notre Dame is the battle for this whole realm, and the battle for the souls of these people. And we're trying to reflect that with a couple of uh, potential rules, and these are optional. This is getting a little weird for some of the Ravenloft stuff. 
I don't think we've done anything like this before, but <laughs> one is the potential that if you are an official member of the Court of Miracles, then you get inspiration for breaking laws, for defying authority, for being these sort of agents of chaos. And once again, some PC types are kind of like, oh boy, it's raining inspiration. <laughs> it's like getting the free pizza for reading a lot of books in fourth grade, where you're like, I was going to read all those books anyway, and you're just giving me free pizza. <laughs> I love this idea, and I will say that there's a way to do this, too, that is more, you know, subtly manipulative, where you could do, like, yeah, it's, it, as you say, it's raining inspiration once you're in with the Court of Miracles, or even if you're not, if you just want your game to completely um, go to hell, like, you can just <laughs> break any law, you get inspiration, you've got this flow. Then once the player characters start doing it, then at a certain point, they break a law, and you're like, no, it needs to be more. <laughs> like that, this is, beca this is because, like, the, uh, like, there's too much law energy here. And you've already, like, you've done enough. It needs to be more extreme than that. And that represents that, like, cosmological force that we're not doing the Feast of Fools. And so it's pushing you, pushing you, pushing you to, like, defy more. Um, I think that would be very effective at manipulating player characters into more and more blatant acts of defiance against Frollo, which is great because it, it fits your plot. Mm -hmm. And we're taking another rule, which is the psychic dissonance optional rule from the DMG for the Outer Planes. Because the idea is... The Outer Plains are these locations that have a strong association with alignment and that people who spend a long rest in one of those places with an opposite alignment have to make a DC-10 con save or take a level of exhaustion. And so we're imagining, yeah, if you are a chaotically aligned character and you are in the Palace of Justice, it's stress. It is like manifesting, radiating order, and that is a kind of pressure on you. Mm -hmm. And you do have to make these – it's not hard. It's a 10 con save, but potentially this could be this very soul-crushing place. But even if you're lawfully ordered and you're spending a lot of time in the Court of Miracles, then that's weighing on you too. That mm -hmm. This is sort of the rules mechanics of that kind of psychological dissonance we were talking about with potentially like your classic lawful good paladin having to sort of be part of the Court of Miracles and having the Court of Miracles as the home base that is going to be causing dissonance, causing disharmony to some of your lawful characters. And this is sort of the rules manifestation. Yeah, I really was excited when Tom mentioned this because there's a lot of stuff in the Palace of Justice that you know has the potential to either be really icky for certain players or that is kind of mentioned in the movie but doesn't have a mechanical effect that this really solves. Mm -hmm. Because we have in the movie that Frollo is you know, he's torturing somebody in the, in the Palace of Justice. And you get that he would totally be torturing the heck out of prisoners. He's all over that. Mm -hmm. But this way you can kind of have he's slowly breaking them down mm -hmm. without having to bring in torture if that's the thing that your PCs yeah, are comfortable yeah, yeah. with. That this imprisonment in this place is just wearing away at their willpower, wearing away at you know, their strength and their sense of self without having to bring in torture. And there's also the line that Frollo has about, you know, travelers, don't do all behind stone walls. Mm -hmm. And, again, if you're doing the Vistani and the old rules for the Vistani, then there is a mechanical representation for that, like we mentioned in the Encanto episode. But with this, again, it could just be the idea that no Frollo has imprisoned them before, and they don't do well in the Palace of Justice because they're chaotically aligned, and so they're, it's just slowly eating away at them. Right. That this is, these places are supposed to be manifestations of ideals and this is kind of a simple way to actually have that be a mechanical effect yeah you know if you wanted to if you wanted to do something kind of like mood building for this whole setting 
you could have this trigger at a particular time each day when the bells sound Ooh. so that it serves as like across all alignments, like the imbalance here, the disorder here, the absence of whole humanity here, like whoever you are, if you're in a place that just like is grating on you here, you can feel that and you can, you could, it would be great to have that happening to like the paladin or monk sleeping for the night in the court of miracles because they're on the run from the law, which is very uncomfortable for mm-hmm. them. And you can have it happening for, you know, your rogue who finally has run out of luck and is, has been right, captured right. and is in the Palace of Justice. It's that sort of that call that the sound of the bells is like, it's not supposed to be this way, mm. which is kind of brings everybody together as like something is wrong mm-hmm. here. Like regardless of your alignment, something is profoundly wrong here and it's wearing on you. Oh, that's cool, that's yeah. really good. I, I like you can have this scene where like they're going to the Palace of Justice and you have maybe your, especially if it's like a big part of their role play in the character, you're kind of more chaotically aligned, you know, you're classically your rogue and you're describing like it just, it feels wrong. If you feel the weight of like the stone walls and the iron bars and the locks and everything's controlled and everyone's caged and the guards like marching in their perfect synchronization and, and that's, that's flavor. But flavor has more of an impact if there's some kind of mechanical representation. And this is like, yeah, you get captured, you're crawling up the walls, and this is the mechanical manifestation of that. This is a bad place. Mm -hmm. This is a place that is hurting your soul. But to be captured, they need to first go to Cite de Notre Dame. So let's talk a little bit about what might have brought your PCs to Cite de Notre Dame, other than the myths pick them up and drop them there because you do a good Tony J impression. <laughs> Rachel, what do you do with it? The Torred of Notre Dame Cathedral, a kindly old man who deserves a far better congregation than the one he has, told me that Ezra could heal the hearts of the people if only they would listen to her voice. It is a lovely sentiment to be sure, but the only voices they seem to listen to are those of the mob and the viceroy. I'm sure I will hear tomorrow that Frollo's voice and Ezra's are one and the same, however, for, as mentioned, the viceroy has graciously agreed to meet with me. An interview for which I will attempt to listen to my mind and not my heart, as my patron advises, as telling Frollo what I truly think of his glorious plans for the city will likely land me in a cell. I will not insult my patron or myself by asking him to wish me luck, as neither of us believe in it. Until tomorrow, D. A religious zealot governed by his own internal lust, amusing and certainly explains the suppression and build-up of emotions among the populace of Notre Dame. When conversing with such an individual, my scholar is wise to heed her patron's advice. A commonality in these lands is that those that claim a pious lifestyle are often the most hypocritical and quick to anger. Frollo is certainly the type to ignore his own numerous faults and will be the first to divert the crowds of his city towards the most convenient target. And I imagine an outsider with your skills in the arcane would make an excellent dupe. This has been The Wonderful World of Dark Lords. We have no affiliation with Disney or Wizards of the Coast. 
All music recordings used in this episode are in the public domain and were obtained through MuseOpen.org. Titles and links are in the show notes. Dialogue for Yensid was written by Azalyn Rex himself, who you can follow on Tumblr at DarkLordAzalyn. The Wonderful World of Dark Lord's logo was designed by Haylight Jones. You can find links to their work in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, look for us on Patreon.com or find our tip jar on Red Circle. Thanks for listening! But it does sort of tell on Frollo when he's not around and give, you know, just the kind of... How much can I curse on your show? Not at all. <laughs> I had a nightmare that I said the F word on your show. Oh, no. really oh geez. Um, I, think I'm gonna put, I think I found a stinger. Yeah. Uh, we, we, do, we do PG, like I, I said, kick ass in, uh, in the Beauty and the Beast episode. Yeah. So we, you can do PG really okay. yeah. Uh Yeah, well, the, the, the typical, like, pot stirring of the dark powers... <laughs>